Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. And as always, I want to thank you for your listening support. If you want to be a guest on the podcast, please email me at gn at gurunishan.com. And please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. As always, I like to read the intentions for why I started this podcast. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from this community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing to victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through this community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and cult-specific therapy or other support as needed, to draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. I want to welcome today's guest to the podcast. His name is Shabad Singh, and he was born and raised in 3HO in the Herndon, Virginia ashram in 1987. His parents are Guru Trang Singh and Guru Matakar. He attended Midi Pity Academy in India from 1999 to 2005 and was in the Eugene ashram from 2006 to 2012. And he taught at Midi Pity Academy in India as an economics teacher in 2012 to 2014. It's been a slow but gradual disconnect from 3HO and fully and he fully disconnected in 2016. In 2017, he became politically active with Democratic Socialists of America and began to work in progressive politics, eventually working on the Bernie Sanders 2020 presidential campaign. He now lives in Washington, DC with his wife, Sukhmanikar, 
and does work in climate advocacy for Al Gore's nonprofit organization, the Climate Reality Project. You can find him on Instagram at shubbed, one and the platform formerly known as Twitter at Shubbed Singh. I want to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So um, I always like to ask my list, uh, my guests, uh, why you feel it's important to share your story. I think it's important as a part of like a historical practice for folks to understand what I think, you know, how people perceived of what they experienced. And, um, you know, I think, uh, I think that's an important part of things. And I think that it's good to hear a lot of different perspectives on this, on this issue in general, but our experiences in particular, you know, because not everybody experiences them or, um, evaluates them in quite the same way. And I think we can all draw useful conclusions from listening to each other's perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, I'm particularly excited to have you on, Shavid, because I knew you um, before you went to India. And so you, you, I find the web of our relationship, similar to what you just said, the way that we process, the way we navigate, we can be born and raised and have very different life experiences, yet common threads and webs of connectivity. So when I'm about 21-ish, you know, you're, I'm in the Herndon Ashram and I actually lived with you and your family. So I want listeners to hear that. This is very exciting to me because it would be in your adult life that I realized, oh, I know him. Oh my God, I know him at Sing too. And I call it the web of our lives. Yeah, I mean, we were so funny, you know, I was trying to ex explain to somebody who you were, you know, like it to me and, and and how I knew you. And I was like, well, she moved into my house. So why did she move into your house? Well, you know, we were in kind of connected to the same community cult kind of a thing. Okay. And, and how did she get? Well, she'd just been living in Africa for a long time. And I believe she married a gentleman from Kenya and then they came and lived with us. And I mean, it was just like, what is, you know, it's like, what a story, just even in that little thing. It's funny how <laughs> a lot of times when people ask questions, I think this is an experience. A lot of our peers, us and our peers kind of have experienced is like when you're asked a simple question about your own history, it's like, you're gonna, you know, there's a lot of backstory. Uh, to explain even something kind of simple. I remember, you know, I mean, just meeting people since I've gotten into politics and kind of worked in the mainstream uh, professional world has been funny. It's like, you know, you talk to people, well, you know, where'd you grow up? What's your story? It's like, well, I grew up in this town and I played baseball and then I went to college and here I am. And it's not to say that if there's anything less in, you know, I mean, heck, I would have, I could, I would probably trade for a little bit of, uh, you know, mundanity, but um, but yeah, it's funny just having those kinds of discussions with people and it's, it's impossible not to feel a little bit like it can be a little bit alienating, I think, you know, for, for the, for us or for me anyway. And, and, you know, you, you really don't want to make people feel like, oh, I'm, 
I have this interesting life or something like that. And that's, it's funny. Like sometimes people, that's, that's how they perceive it. And they go, Oh, wow, that's so interesting. And I just grew up here and there. And it's like, I, I just want to be able to relate to people and connect to people. And right. uh, anyway, but yeah, it's just an option. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. Um, we're going to get into hearing your story, but I just wanted listeners to know at this, um, this stage, I'm, I must've been like 21 ish and I got a job in Herndon by the recommendation of my brother who worked with for Guru Jot Singh and um, they needed somebody who Guru Jot Singh wanted somebody who had experience in Africa. And so I got recommended because I had just come from living in, in Kenya. Um, and while I was in the Herndon Ashram, um, the place I that Guru Jot Singh arranged for me to live was at your house, right? And I want to say you're like nine. You must have been like eight, 1978. Yeah, it's pretty young. Yeah. I mean, and it was, it was pre India. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Very early on in those days. I mean, that's, I think it was, it could have been around, yeah, even as early as seven or something. I seem to remember a, a Christmas present that coincided with uh, you're coming into my life that would places us around seven years old or so. So. And that's what I remember. We had a, a Christmas celebration. We lived in the basement of your guys's house, which is this lovely house. It was probably the fanciest I had ever lived. And um, this is where, in my story, Faiswali got, got sponsored in, uh, from Kenya and we got a land in your house. And I totally remember your dad and your mom and you. And I remember him at Singh because his mom was also living in your house, right? Mm -hmm. um, him and his mom. And she worked for Guru Jot Singh. So- mm -hmm. The perspective there was, you know, Guru Jot Singh had his his connection in with making sure that the people that needed housing had it right there in the community. And your dad with your household was one of those people. Yeah, I know. It's, a, you know, the whole, the story of my house in Herndon, I think, is a good way to think about the experience that I had. It's like a good, my housing in Herndon and my family family's housing in Herndon is an interesting lens through which to view my story. Awesome. Uh, before you came and, and anybody came, the first person that lived in my house, well, actually, let's even go back before my parents lived in that house. That's where like, you know, Herndon was where like Siri Narankar and Gertej and a bunch of folks that were about, you know, good 10 to however many 15 years older than me came to like go to community college and live. And so it was this sort of like um, halfway ashram between uh, India and like the, the rest of the world. Meaning um, those early kids that went to GNFC exactly. when there was that gap year where they, they wasn't really sure what they were doing. There ended up being this teen house that yep. they were on their way to community college just so that people are hearing this. That year was in the eighties, right? Late eighties. A bunch of teenagers that were from India didn't know where to go and Guru Jot Singh kind of set up this house where a bunch of them lived, so to speak. And I, I was born in the house opposite, like the house across the street from that. The reason I mentioned that house though is I mean, A, it just sort of Herndon is a really interesting uh place in the history of 3HO. It's like kind of becomes the major East Coast hub, I would say, of you know, probably the biggest ashram in, in, on the East Coast uh, and definitely the like longest lasting and sort of most durable with the most sort of like durable institutions. Um, and 
yeah, so I was born in that house across the street from from there. I mean, next door to the, the teen's house was where Gurjod Singh lived, where literally months before I was born was when the raid happens on uh, his home by the DEA and, uh, you know, for for because he'd been entrapped in a uh, uh, hashish and weapons smuggling scheme, as, as you've talked about before on your show. So that's the sort of like, 87 is when I come into the world and I feel like that those kids are sort of like phasing out their time there and your Joe, you know, has been through this thing and you're coming into the 90s when I feel like 3HO is coming into a, a new era where like you have, I don't know, it's like a lot more legitimate in a lot of ways. Like, you know, instead of smuggling hash, like um, Grajot and, and other men in the community built uh, health scribe and uh, these businesses that in interestingly were also some of the first American businesses to start outsourcing to places like India. They were kind of on the cutting edge of that. So <clears throat> yeah. And then my, my dad was, my mom and dad were, were not in that circle. I mean, they were all friends and socially connected and all of that, but my dad was never much of a businessman and he, he was a chiropractor. He loved to take care of people and help people out. And uh, he never, you know, he never kind of amassed his, his fortune. He was always kind of, we were always check to check, I would say. Um, and that was another interesting dynamic is that our household was always, you know, we were less financially secure, certainly than, you know, Gurjot Singh's household, but also the people connected to those businesses Coincidentally, a lot of those people, a lot of the people in the Herndon Ashram came from money. So like, you know, Gurjot's family, his wife's family, Satwant, uh, who's, you know, the now the, the head of the SSSC board or the chairman or whatever the title is or the director. I don't remember. Um, he's executive director, I think. So anyway, he, you know, they, they're all folks that either came from some means or uh, and were able to build upon those means. Whereas my family and there were other families in, in the community that, um, you know, never quite were as wealthy, but I would say that ours was often always struggling. And so that was an interesting place to be. Um, you know, I remember kids, you know, families going on vacation and, and, and things like that, or, um, you know, getting certain things. And it was by no means like I lived poor or anything like that. I lived a squarely middle class, in a middle class upbringing, but where a lot of my, you know, neighbors went to private, the private Catholic school, uh, I went to public school down the street, you know, or, um, you know, that kind of thing. So, so I think partly because of that, and I think the reason I think it's worth mentioning is our household, I think, was more ready to take on borders to help cover costs. This is more occurring to me later in life. And before you came, uh, there was a young woman who was from that same generation um, of kids that had lived in that house named Jai Jyot, uh from Amsterdam. Uh, I believe she was from Amsterdam. She was from Holland. And she'd gone to school in India, and she had come to live in our house. Apparently... Uh, you know, I don't know what exactly her story was, but I would say that the perception, the 3HO 
perception of her story at that time was she had some sort of a troubled family situation that required, you know, where she kind of needed housing and like somewhere to land. And, you know, upon growing up, we've learned, you know, it's just a much more complex story that has to do with the dynamics of 3HO and family separation and parents who don't really look after their kids and um, all of that kind of stuff. So, so I always had that sense of uh, folks being around and kind of this community as like intertwined with our, the lives of our family and, and everything like that. There wasn't, um, you know, I, I, it's like, I looking at kind of how neighborhoods and how things work in mainstream life, you know, you might know a few of your neighbors on in the same block and might be close to them, but like, you know, there's not this kind of broader sense of community necessarily around you. Um, so I'd say from a very early age, you know, you have this sense that you're a part of this thing and people are there and you're accountable to them. And, um, it's a, it's a powerful dynamic. I mean, until, and even into elementary school, you know, I, I made a couple of friends from school, but the majority of my peer group is made up of, of 3HO kids. So, I mean, it really was its own little world even though we weren't living on a commune somewhere where we weren't in an Espanola kind of a situation where, or LA where you have a kind of this really big active community. That's like ours was a little bit smaller, a little bit more like, you know, integrated into the world around it. Cause we just lived in a suburban neighborhood and, you know, our families did business locally and, and all that kind of stuff. So you know, we were kind of living in between these worlds, but regardless, um, you know, the majority of my life was 3HO and, and 3HO people and my life calendar revolved around 3HO stuff, uh, you know, most of the time. And Herndon was a, you know, was a, was a cool place to grow up in a lot of ways, I think. Like there was a lot of, um, you know, we kids would go outside every day and play sports with each other. Um, you know, you had some of the, when, when the older kids started coming back from, uh, school in India, you got that kind of bullying starting to happen and that roughness kind of get introduced. And that was definitely like noticeable, but you know, you, you kind of maneuvered around it. And so there was a lot of good things about growing up there in terms of just like community and being active outside and just having a lot of friends and stuff like that. I was super overweight starting from about age seven or a little bit older. And I was, I was like, you know, mercilessly made fun of by kids that went to that, I, that were, you know, most of the time it was instigated by older kids, especially the ones coming back from India. So I started to experience that sort of like, kind of harsh edge of of that world at home before I ever started going there uh, to school in India, I mean. Um, you know, I went to 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 Khalsa school, preschool. Um, but then when I did go to public school, I also experienced, uh, you know, prejudice or whatever against my turban and my name and stuff like that. And um, you know, there were older kids at the school that would uh, call me 
you know, all kinds of horrible names like Raghead and Sand N-Word and all kinds of uh, messed up stuff and and uh, also get made fun of for being overweight. So I think from a pretty young age, I experienced a lot of like negative attention from people around me for the, the way that I looked and uh, in multiple different ways and from different directions so mm -hmm. i also and i also grew up in a household that was like very tumultuous like my parents you know had a really poor communication and and there was uh you know arguing and there was um you know this insecurity about money and things like that so i would say i i was born into like a pretty kind of insecure and like kind of scary position from a young age, you know, and that's just sort of how things unfolded. And um, I want to pause you and just acknowledge you've said so much, but you yeah. brought up some really key themes that I just kind of want us to pause on. Um, you spoke about your father and your mother um, and just the household itself wasn't um, of the most prominent of the community and, and how Herndon, what it represented as a body of an ashram of the East Coast, but also who Guru Jyot Singh was, right, at, by this time. And so within the landscape of the ethos of your ashram, there was very much the the households that were economically well-off had come from money and or who had built wealth along the way. And then those same families in that cul-de-sac that very much didn't. And then how the chess moves are used on the poorer ones in our community in 3HO and the history of it, that it's not unique to Herndon, but it played out super publicly in a way in, in Herndon that I think helps to illuminate a 3HO system around the haves and the have nots and how the business successful business people could use the yoga teachers and the big hearted healers, the chiropractors or the school teachers um, as pawns a bit for schemes that the big hearted people didn't even see going on because they just think it's this healthy, happy, holy community. That's an important, yeah, it's definitely an important thing to bring up because it's like, you know, my, like my dad to this day can't accept any of the reports of harm. Um, my mom, she's more open to, to that truth. Um, and has kind of, you know, told me about her feelings about the whole situation. Um, but with my dad, it's like neither of them ever witnessed anything that they thought was untoward. My dad did work in the toner businesses. Um, and I think he knows, he does know that they were fraudulent. Um, but aside from that, you know, he was again, and he was like a he was a guy on the phones. He wasn't like some manager. He was an employee um, from a young age. He all they both also worked in like the uh, Golden Temple restaurants, making you know less than nothing, and uh, you know in exchange, I guess, for room and board at the ashram houses. You know, and for them, of course, it you know they talk about it in glowing terms and how it was this like you know, crucible of kind of spiritual um, community uh, that, especially in the early days, the way they talk about it is like a very, you know, it's like, 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 like Oasis in a desert, you know, 
I, and I can really, I think I can really identify that and like identify with that and empathize with it. You know, I think like the, and I like, honestly, I have a lot of, despite the many criticisms and all the things that we'll talk about, I have a lot of admiration for their like courage to like step out in a direction that was so unlike the world that they were raised in. But mm. getting back to like, uh, getting back to the point that you made, it's like, yeah, they were never, they were really like true believers, really like just earnest people. My parents never had, I don't know. I don't think either of them have ever wronged anybody on purpose or, you know, swindled or they're really kind of just decent people like in the and most how many in 3HO are representative of that like to me I think that is like wow absolutely yeah that dig, big dig, hearted dig, person I, that just thought they were doing the right thing and trusted the leaders right that these things couldn't possibly be corrupt and enough of that if you go through that enough years how do you dig your head out of that you know and, and like I said I think it's like there's there was the uh the, I, I like the analogy of like the wolf, the sheepdogs and the sheep and the wolf is Yogi Bhajan and he sort of knows the plan and he's the big alpha. And then you have the sheepdogs who know how to follow his commands and they don't have scruples about mistreating others. And then you have the sheep who are, you know, everybody else. I also don't mean to be, for that to be degrading towards the folks that I classify in that sheep uh category because quite frankly that's how the entire planet functions uh and and the vast majority of us are in that subordinated powerless position so mm. you know exactly. it's it's like it's important to to take note of Absolutely. um you know and so so yeah i mean that was the the atmosphere and kind of the the class you the know class. <laughs> structure class of that. hierarchy the class structure and i also want to bring up another element that i'm wondering if you can speak to is that your mom is french and um and just wondering what that story is not that you're here to tell her story but how your parents ended up because that was one thing that they were so different you know and so that also adding to the climate of your household and what was really going on financial insecurity i feel like was one way that a lot of households were kept unstable in 3HO. So it was a bit, I see it more purposeful than I ever did growing up before. Yeah. Um, but then also yeah. just the couple yeah. connection because that played out through your whole childhood. Like even your mom, I remember just the six months or short time I was there, she was always on your dad's case around his diet and his eating and your eating and this whole thing around being too fat and all this stuff. And she's like quite thin and, and you uh, could yeah. feel the love they had between each other, but you could also feel that there was the built intention, which I'm seeing also as a three HO theme and not hmm. necessarily unique to a household, but I don't know your parents' yeah. background. So I was curious. Yeah. I mean, I it's 3HO, but I feel like it's it's okay. So the thing that makes it 3HO specific is is maybe there's less of a okay. So just rewind. Yeah, my mother's born and raised out, outside of Paris. She, from a young age, is fascinated by anything to do with the East. Uh, she talks about seeing Bruce Lee movies or Kung Fu. You know that TV show with with the 
uh, what was his name? David Carradine. Um, and you know how it, or like, you know, when she started getting into, you know, the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix and hearing sitar and stuff like that, it just totally blew her mind. She tells stories of how she used to practice breath control without even knowing what it was. She would just try to like control her breath and breathe very long and deep and kind of meditate without ever even hearing about what that was. And so, and, and she had this intense connection with nature where she would literally walk into the, into the forest and talk to trees and like hug them and, and like sit with them. And people thought she was like people thought she was crazy because she just was different. You know, she just like was had this sort of subtlety and connection with the world around her and uh, an extremely like a very poetic kind of romantic, um, smart, you know, artistic person who was, you know, I mean, you know, she's in France, but she's not. It's not like she's living in uh, 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 a hip uh, neighborhood in Paris around, you know, she's in kind of middle class, sort of the equivalent of the suburbs and of a major city of America in France. So, you know, she, she goes through that kind of struggle of kind of her parents wanting her to get help and like her being like, I'm just, I'm not crazy. I just, you know, these are the things that I feel. And she got, you know, went to fashion school and, um, in Paris, and then uh, a boyfriend and her at the time decided to go buy land in like the mid 70s when she's like 21 years old, um, buy land to India. And so her and her boyfriend, like basically through like train and hitchhiking, go through Eastern Europe, through Turkey through Afghanistan, through Pakistan, into Amritsar in like 1976. And she goes to the Golden Temple, like that's her first land port of landing or whatever in, in Amritsar or in India. And she just said she just had this like feeling that she had arrived home after a long time and and finally felt a sort of like, like she was, her thirst was quenched or something. And um, she had no idea what it was. She she didn't understand the language. She didn't know anything. She didn't know the word Sikh. Um, she just happened upon this place and had this like, you know, mystical experience, basically. And um, and then she traveled around India for a year. And that's a whole incredible story that I wish she would write down because, you know, she met Shivite sadhus in the middle of the jungle she met like indigenous people who like worshipped a goat that they kept in like a special like temple like tent she like lived on the beach in goa in the mid 70s like she you know had this she ended and then she ends up kind of getting mixed up with uh, some some uh, uh unsavory kind of gangster uh, drug smuggler types in Bombay and at first thinking that like just through the social scene in Bombay and then she realizes that basically they're trying to get her to like you know commit crimes for them and so she has to like escape 
back to France. And it's a whole incredible, and just so happens that like, you know, there's this crazy story where she's like, finds herself on the streets of Bombay with like, you know, she has to leave her baggage behind because she has to get out of the place where she is like real quick because someone's coming and she's okay, like wandering. Okay. I, I know. <laughs> well, it's interesting. But so she, so she, and she ends up getting picked up by an auto rickshaw driver who happens to be an Amritdhari Sikh in Bombay, which you don't see everywhere. And uh, he takes to like basically a women's shelter and make sure that she gets checked in and and that's how she sort of regroups and gets her way back home and the first you know within months of arriving back in paris she gets onto the metro and meets guru han's car by chance on the metro who's there hosting some yogi who's like a friend of yogi budgeons and she, my mom just says take me with you and that's like based then she moves to Amsterdam, et cetera. And there you go. Moves to LA thinking she's just going to go there for three months to like check it out. And then here she is still in Herndon uh, from that trip where she got married off to my dad, who long story short was a Jewish kid from outside of Baltimore who uh, got into uh similar substances that his peers were getting into in the 60s and had uh, some some experiences that um, were pretty powerful. And uh, and then, you know, I think he was sort of moving towards a cliff uh, in terms of uh, his his mental health and, and whatnot because of those experiences. And some he met um, a friend of his turned him on to Kundalini Yoga. And he ends up moving to, you know, Baltimore ashram mm. um, in a very long story, story is short. And they both end up in L.A. and they and, you know, they meet each other and they they like each other. And my dad has a crush on her and basically like asks Yogi Bhajan if he can marry her. And he says, sure. And, uh, you know, gets permission from my grandfather and all of that. And my French grandparents fly to LA, my Jewish grandparents fly to LA, and Yogi Bhajan proceeds, presides over their ceremony. And there's actually, I think, an audio, maybe even a video recording of it. Um, so anyway, you know, that they're in Proust Road and they're in that world. And, and, you know, in order to be closer to the East Coast where my dad's family is and where where you know my mother's family is in France, obviously they moved back to they moved to the Herndon ashram uh, and have me. So, you know, I mean, the household I grew up in was yeah these two like wildly different people, both creative, both br very bright in their own ways, um, but like you know my my dad's family did not know how to regulate their emotions at all and they were probably all untreated various you know uh, uh issues and uh um my dad has you know he went through crazy mood swings and and stuff like that and and you know had a really hard time dealing with criticism or like dealing with with problems he has you know he he ate himself into you know oblivion and and my mom was watching all of this unfold it's like 
he's not a bad guy by any means. He's a great guy. You know, he's a very loving guy who I feel like never got real, like the, where the, maybe the three HO part comes in, who knows is getting care, you know, and how kind of psychological care wasn't something that our parents' generation were thinking about, or were necessarily like encouraged to do. And, you know, the yoga and the meditation and the lifestyle was sort of the answer for everything. So, so there is maybe some of that, but you know, my dad has siblings that certainly never touched this community and they never got care, care either. So, you know, and they're all there. So I think what so, I was um, feeling from the, thank you for the backstory, by the way, on, on both your mom and your father, and even just the way couples come together, like there's just so many different versions of ways. And so that was helpful because it creates a product, right? It creates a product in a household. Um, people come on very different paths and land in a place and now they have to co-mingle. Um, and I just, I remember that about your parents and I remember your, your father being just humor was his mechanism. And so if we, I see people have, having very different coping mechanisms and humor, just like in any household, not unique to Trecho, can be used to avoid emotions we haven't ever been taught to regulate or feel. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's my dad in a nutshell. I mean, it's, you know, everything's a joke and, um, you know, I mean, it's part of it's part of his superpowers too right like it's it's why children like flock to him like santa claus like they love him because he just like knows how to make kids happy and laugh and he he has this ability to access like a um a childlike aspect of himself that that is that a lot of people lose in their life and that i think actually brings a lot of like joy and creativity to life that you don't that you miss out on if you kind of lose that element of yourself and then the flip side of that is is that you're childlike in other ways and that you can't deal with you know when when mom or in this case your wife says you know Bertrand, like you're eating yourself to death and like you know we're we're spending you know we're spending more than we can than we're taking in and i'm freaked out and like we need to get all of these things under control and then he's like, well, you're, you know, this is, you're being unfair to me or, you know, it's like, it's hard to encapsulate a whole relationship, but. Yeah. And, and I and think I, I also just want to acknowledge that it's not your job to tell their story and I didn't exactly. want you to go there. So I wanted you to know that I don't need you to do that, but I appreciate how much you've given the backstory to really help us feel the environment you came up in. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, it was just, you know, that they just, there was a lot lacking in their communication and it came out in these like uh, outbursts that could, that were really terrifying as a little kid, you know? And so I think there was a lot of insecurity. Like I had a lot of, at home, there was always the fear of an outburst outside. There was a fear of being picked on or, you know, and then at, in the community, there was a fear of like doing something wrong. You know what I mean? And I remember when I would see Gurjot Singh walk down the neighborhood, I'd be just terrified. Like he, he was just like so intense. Um, and there was he, and, and the way others treated him, of course, you know, rubs off on you and the way people talk about others. And so I'd say that that kind of paints, you know, I think it does paint an accurate picture of the kind of like kid that I was and the kind of 
surroundings I was in. And, and so I had similar, I have and had similar to my dad, like that humor coping mechanism. Then I also had this like really intense sort of, I guess, artistic, creative, melancholic side of myself. And I'd say by age 12, I was experiencing like severe anxiety and depression before I even ever started going to India. But nobody would have identified that as that. And I didn't really know how to communicate it to anybody. I just felt like horrible all the time and didn't want to be at school. And yeah, I was super overweight. So India came up because everybody else. Before you go to move on to India, I want to acknowledge how you spoke to the community that you had in Virginia where, you know, you lived in a cul-de-sac. And so the kids of the different ages, um, you know, the basically only kids that weren't age of India were there, you know, so there's, there's a certain age group that's there. And then, um, you know, I'm in my twenties and I come and stay there and I definitely was not a normal person coming. I'm wearing like more African style turbans and stuff like this. And I had dreadlocks too. And what I appreciated about your household was your dad kind of had a rebel spirit where it's just like, everyone's welcome. You know, he, he reminded me of the persona and not unique to him, but the persona in 3HO of the um, Jerry Garcia type, you know, he's the go with the flow, cool guy, plays the guitar, always makes the atmosphere. And to add that he was a chiropractor, which adds to kind of the big, robust energy that he holds, you know, that's very 3HO chiropractor persona in my experience. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's really, that's a good, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, it's so true. Like, um, there's, there's a lot there. Like, yeah, I mean, I grew up watching every generation, like every kid a few years older than me starting to go to India. So it was just like, Either you're going to go to India or you're not going to India, but there's that is a question and it's going to be answered. And going to India was definitely like the. It was the like, I don't know, it felt like a brave decision or it felt like the right kind of like the difficult, but the correct decision, you know, even at the time I knew you know, you hear about kids getting beat up and all that kind of stuff. Like I knew before I went there that it was abusive, you know, but I didn't think about it. About it that way I thought about it as like a rite of passage you know and I, I looked at these guys that were five six years older than I was and they were listening to hip-hop and like they were you know big and they were you know cursing and they were tough and they were skating and um they were super like I don't know they were they were cool kind of scary but also sort of cool and you feel like you know yeah I like I want to go toughen up like I want to go get better obviously like I'm right now I'm I'm putty I'm weak I'm soft I'm you know and you kind of recognize that toughness as something to aspire to so for me like it was never really much of a question I knew that I was going to go like I wanted to go from from pretty early on um Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. the ethos I think we talk to. Like, you don't always know, but I know even as a kid that never went to India, it was something you always felt like you missed out on because it's a part yeah. of the ethos of what we all strive to be able to do. So, hearing that you knew that there was bullying and these types of things that already existed, the rite of passage, that it's it, it goes to the Guru Gobind Singh warrior totally. mentality built into the culture as well. 
totally. I mean, and also the, the thing that you mentioned about kind of the open mindedness of my household, I would say that like, I did feel lucky about that. Like, you know, I wouldn't say my parents were necessarily like socially or politically, like, you know, really, you know, thinking or talking a lot about that, but at least it was like, you know, they, they, they were clearly not only not racist, but anti-racist. And I understood what racism was from a young age. And I, I like understood that different people are all acceptable. And, you know, I had some basic level of universality that I grew up with in that, that household for sure. There was definitely like homophobia though. Like I remember, you know, um, I remember when Will and Grace would come on television and my mom would make a face or something or, you know, conversations about what if Shepard was gay and her being, you know, uh, sad or something, you know, about that. You did talk, you also brought up like, I guess before we go to India, I'll, I'll also briefly touch on sort of, you know, I had, I had kind of two worlds that I, I grew up in. One was uh, 3HO and then every summer of like my youth, into my young adulthood and um i would go to france to visit my mom's family and so for like a month at a time i was speaking a different language and so i was fluent in french and i would be around no one else who was in 3ho and people would ask me about it all the time so i'd be talking about it all the time and i know it's funny you know i look back and i kind of realize like what i was i was crafting this sort of narrative of who I was and based on what I should be saying and it had nothing to do with how I felt you know it was had way more to do with an image that I felt like I had to craft about why I w did what I did and who I was and I had to argue these positions about all kinds of you know sex before marriage or whatever so it was interesting that I had this other side of my world where all of this was like under question and where um you know my my cousins for example you know were my 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 a lot of my family on my mom's side are like you know socialists like they're they're um or you know uh, social democrats they're they're totally evolved you know from a way before many of many others were just on things like issues of race and and uh uh queerness and all that kind of stuff and so that's like the worlds i was living in between and and there was definitely like looking back once again i think there was a lot of um yeah i was people were posing questions that definitely were making me think and really consider why i was doing what i was doing and in some ways that was really powerful because I look back at it and I go, hmm, like maybe it was unlocking things that um, I wasn't quite aware of. And at the same time, it got, I think my by my nature, I'm, I'm a, I like an argument or I like to construct an argument or I like to make a point. I like to write and I like to, you know, um, encapsulate ideas and express them. And so my intellectual self took the, the, those challenges and actually built up really strong defenses. And I would try as hard as I could to really come at being in 3HO and a 
and and a Sikh and all of that from the from as logical of a place as I could. And so in some ways, mentality wise, I feel like I was I was different than some of my peers because I had this perspective from my French side. And um at the same time, I was like really staunch in my beliefs because I was spent all this time like building like trying to craft strong arguments and like really arguing them and holding to them uh, in the face of questioning. Questioning. And so young, I, I want to make two points on that. One is I feel like as children growing up in this Dharma, we learn such pridefulness, right? So to have to explain things young is a part of establishing such depth of pride of being different. Yeah, I mean, I remember going into my every year in elementary school, I was one of two Sikhs in the school. And at the beginning of the school year, the teachers would ask me to give a short talk on Sikhism to the class to explain why I wore a turban and like my name and all that kind of stuff. And I think it was there they were trying to do something good i mean i think if you did that now people would go you know this is obviously like emotional labor of a child <laughs> yeah and yeah and like you know trump could be traumatizing and all this kind of stuff and and i was lucky because like most of the kids that i went to school with were nice in my class in my age range and whatnot and they were mostly just curious and and it opened up conversation and, and you know it was my teacher's effort to try to like get ahead of kids making fun of me you, sure. right yeah so, just the depth of pride i remember that in going to elementary school too in being one of the only seat kids and just the amount of like like you know why do you wear that thing on your head because it's a part of our religion and you just the steadfastness and like the, I feel it in my body as like ferocity to have to explain my name and everything we stand for. And yeah. it's just been a lot to let it go over time. Yeah. And, and yes, I, I don't know. I had, I want, I was going to go on another tangent, but I don't think it's worth it. It's like, but that pride was definitely instilled from a young age. And the way that my mind reacted to that was to, yeah, really try to construct like strong logic and arguments for why I I am who I am and do what I do. And, and how much so we were taught that as kids, like I really don't even think it's as personal as much as I feel like our parents look to us as that in, their, in how the teachings were played out. But I want to go to the added point you made about your mom still had very much a French identity and linked to her French family. And this is a unique totally. element, I feel like, in your story than in a lot of our stories, because it's it's quite unique for a woman like your mom to still maintain a sense of identity that isn't only 3HO. And yet there was always that flavor to her. And so hearing her backstory that it was her journey and her exploration and then she how she landed in the 3HO world it just makes a little more sense because that is unique to your story that it wasn't as much as it's this ferocity of 3HO, it's also this uniqueness where you got a little one month a, a year deculting and getting to have some culture. Well, yeah. And French, French culture is definitely like the debate around the dinner table is like a huge, like having discord in the family over issues and like arguing 
to the end of a point is so normal. And it's like, it's, it's, it's like a, a, just a part of culture there. Like, you know, when people get together for a soiree, it's not to like get shit faced on like bad beer and, and, and party. It's like to, I mean, of course everybody does that. Actually banter. That's universal, actually. but, but, but there's also like come over, bring some, bring something, a bite to eat or have a glass of wine. Let's talk. And it's like eight people just talking all night, you know? And I, I still have not to this day, like even among in college or in places where you might think those kinds of things happens, it was never quite the same as in France. And it really is like a part, part of the culture. So I think like, fucking arguing is really and i'm also jewish so it's like (laughs) so like i definitely have a combative um sort of aspect to to the way i think and that's sort of how i set my mind up to like respond to the world around me but the point that you're making of having a source of identity outside of 3ho i think makes it that's really important because my mom she had that French identity. Like I said, you know, she had this experience that she had this mystical experience outside of the context of 3HO. And to this day, she, you know, and now I think like she has a much easier time sort of speaking about all of these things kind of more honestly and, and seeding ground and being like, no, this is certainly all possible. And this is like, you know, it, if so many people are reporting it, how can you deny it and you know so it's more lot she can think about it more logically because she her she always says he was yes he was a teacher and he was really important the things that I experienced you know in this community and with him but ultimately I always considered myself like a Sikh of the Guru before anything else and actually that was kind of the mentality that I feel like I always felt like I was a Sikh before I was a 3HO person I never really Especially after going to school in India, I started to. I was going to ask, did that happen in India or was that? um, So you've led us well up to this nine or 10 age where you end up going to India. Um, The last thing I want to just mention real quick is how much nostalgia um, that your your, parents stories of their nostalgia story of how they landed, how that in and of itself is trauma related. Right. How how we can just stay in our nostalgia for so long. I know it helped me get through my 20s and 30s, the nostalgia of the community um, and seeing it for what it is opens up more compassion for for these spaces, maybe. Oh, yeah. I mean, big time. I, you know, I I definitely. It it is it's 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 I, I have a hard time listening to the stories now because you know that they're just so rose colored and so sort of um uh what's the word i'm looking for curated um and 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 it's understandable and um and you can see it as a symptom of cptsd right you can see it as sure sure sure. the rose colored stories get you through yeah i mean they both had really they had they had in different ways they had difficult relationships with their families um they were both kind of seekers they were both sort of out there they were just a little different than than kind of their families or the people around them so you know it made sense that you know that neither of them were like you know the, the the sort of you know you hear a lot of stories like addiction and like hardcore abuse and stuff like that that kind of drove people or or helped 
land people, people the in a community, right? But you know, they're they're um, you can definitely draw a line from their relationships, I think, to their families to to kind of needing a different family. Yeah, and I can also hear the theme that happened to a lot of our parents' generation in terms of the fetishization of Orientalism, just all the books and all the things, like how that ties into anti-racist language today, how there just ended up being this whole incubator that set people up like our parents because of the early Orientalism. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important. To, that's an important thing to remember because there's factors that are pushing all of these, um, this whole situation forward that have, that are much bigger than Yogi Bhajan or any of our families. You know, I mean, there, there's, there's a, I, I did a whole four hour podcast on this, but like, there's like, you know, there's Yogi, there's, Godmen guru types going back to the early 1900s. Before that, you have spiritualism and people investigating, you know, Whitman and investigating the Bhagavad Gita and all this kind of stuff. And um, and they they were primed, like they were, and it, and it was tied to economics. This is the point I want to make. Is like. When a guru or or somebody who was, you know, had these mystical things to offer, it's like you can, they would tailor their teachings based on what people wanted and what would draw people in. And so, you know, you can read story after story about all these guys. They're some of them, maybe they're legit, you know, scholars of whatever, but a lot of them were like, similar to Yogi Bhajan, where they're like kind of middle-class guys who are kind of educated. So they speak English and they have some means, but they're kind of coming to America, like make their way. And maybe they took a yoga class or two and they remember what their grandpa taught them about Sikhism or, you know, they were involved, you know, or Hinduism or whatever. And they kind of create these personas. And so, and it's, and there's, there's economic factors that are driving that, like I'm going to make money doing this, but then there's also like political factors going like what's legit, like, like what can an Indian person, what kind of work can they even do in this country? Like, you know, until, uh, until uh, the early 1900s, Asian people can't own land in this country. There's like a period of time in the night, in the 20th century when, uh, uh, Indian visas are basically like uh, rescinded and there's like people trapped in America that have to like make their way and figure out how to, you know, so there's, there's all these like bigger societal, political, economic, social factors that I think are pushing all this along that it's important to like, remember, because our, I feel like our story is kind of a microcosm of much bigger, um, phenomenon that you see elsewhere were just easier to study because we all were connected and had this sort of unique identity yeah so well said right, that was rambling that no it's an excellent circle around because that's what we have to keep remembering you know we have this personal experience that is very personalized in the landscape of a much larger socialization that's happened to generations before us and when i start reading it from a larger lens i'm like well, no wonder this whole generation got caught up in that and, and, and you can kind of track things. Um, 
but yeah, so you were just priming us for how you ended up going to India. And I don't know if you want to go there. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, got an, you know, really overweight, really insecure uh, kid. I was 11, 1999. When I went there, I went there with, you know, my dear friend, Himmet, who you mentioned. Now he was uh, living with you because his mom was also living with you and you guys were about the same age. Yeah, he's like three months younger. So we're basically the you know, same age. There's I also a hand- want to point out that both of you guys didn't have brothers, siblings. And so you guys grew up kind of it together, very sibling-like. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely the closest thing to a sibling that I have, you know. Um, and yeah, I mean, so we, we went together and, you know, other kids in the neighborhood went. Some, some other kids um, were returned you know who were older than us and who'd been there before some who were younger than me were also returning because they started going when they were seven or eight or whatever um and that was a absolutely kind of just the trip there is definitely like you know still seared into my memory I remember you know I definitely remember crying and I remember getting on that plane and both the kind of fear and the like excitement, you know, were immediate, immediately there, you know, the way the older kids are interacting with you is already different. It's already a little bit more kind of sinister, or a little bit more kind of intense in terms of like their demeanor and their kind of that pecking order mentality is, it's like, you can just start already start feeling it and like, feeling the kind of social dynamics already taking hold like and then especially once we like unite with people on the layover and people from other cities start joining us and that bigger kind of social network starts to form and then you land in delhi and you get on the buses and everybody's back together and everything's back into that kind of mentality of like you know might is right older kids the stronger kids are in control um and, you know, I just remember <clears throat> being under like in fear from the minute I get onto those buses that pick us up in New Delhi and start driving Amritsar, like, you know, kids, you know, older. This is the first time that I've been really like bullied, I'm realizing, where like it's not like a joke or like a, a joke at your expense or teasing or a passing kind of a thing that that kind of makes you feel bad and it's to make other people laugh no this was like an older kid coming up to you in the dark being like what food do you have and being like you know what are you talking about and they'd be like open your backpack like take out all of your snacks take out you know everything that you have okay i'm taking this i'm taking this and then you say no and you get slapped in the face for the first time or punched for the first time and like by a, by a much bigger kid hard for the first time. And, you know, so all of that, like within moments, you're just like, okay, I'm on a new reality. I'm now, it's about survival. Um, and, you know, I didn't even have it. It was, it was, it was already less violent by the time I get there than even just a few years before when kids are at a block and, you know, where they don't even have a school and they're just getting, you know, people are being beaten near to death and stuff like that and still it was just you know it was terrifying and and you know physically threatening quickly um 
merciless, you know, like just especially being like overweight from Virginia. The Virginia kids had a nickname that we all got upon arrival. Like any kid that would come from Virginia, we were called the VPs, the Virginia pussies, because we were soft and, you know, we were always, we were notoriously less tough, uh, you know, and. Was that because it was considered to have more money out of that ashram? Maybe, yeah. Like it was more lush because you were in this nice suburb, so to speak? All right. So, yeah, I mean, I the, the situation became very clear to me that, you know, Mitty Pity Academy was like not only a hard scramble place that I thought it was going to be, but it was a lot. It was just more than I could have really imagined growing up how I did in Herndon. Um, I had experienced kids picking on me or teasing me, but I hadn't experienced like that just total domination by someone else because, you know, especially that first year, 1999, I'd say that, you know, every year after that, the, the school was, um, there was more supervision and more sort of control of the kids like whereabouts and stuff like that. But that first year I was there, you know, if you, with a little bit of ingenuity, you could basically get around any kind of systems of monitoring or anything like that. Cause it was so poorly run and understaffed. And so I remember within like two weeks of arriving, you know, the beginning of the year, like before school had started, it was just like the wild west, like kids were staying up all night. Uh, boys were sneaking over to the girls dorm and vice versa. Um, I remember one night, a bunch of the older kids like kind of rallied all of the boys in the dorm and they like, you know, we were all like kind of pulled out of our rooms by the older kids and brought into the section, the center section of the dorm. And they had made um, they had bought like tons of Indian firecrackers, which if you've never experienced, you know, in America, folks, the biggest kind of little firecracker you can get is like an M80, which is like maybe the size of like a little battery, like a double A battery. And, you know, you can buy things that are, you know, four or five times that big, you know, like a, basically a matchbox full of powder that's wrapped in like twine. Uh, and sealed so it's like hard and those things were like little grenades so they had gathered a ton of these like big powerful firecrackers they had made molotov like a couple of molotov cocktails and they were like okay here's the plan we're gonna everybody get some firecrackers you know like one kid gets firecrackers the other kid gets a lighter and like you're gonna all run around campus and just like throw firecrackers all over the school and we're gonna go uh throw these molotov cocktails on the basketball court and that's exactly what happened so like i just remember being like 11. i don't think i was uh qualified to be given uh firecrackers or or anything yet so i was just like running around screaming with the other kids kind of just causing a havoc and actually, I 
<laughs> you you know, I had just recently watched Gurganesh's episode where he talks about a Kalsa High. A Kalsa High was was the staff there the first year that I was there. And he was like a big brother to me. But like in that moment, he was like staff. He's like a young man. There's kids like going nuts. And he just like ran past me and kind of shoulder tackled me to the ground. Not like trying to hurt me, just like in panic, uh, trying to get to the sort of center of what was going on. And... uh, I remember it ended when all the firecrackers run out and Molotov cocktails are thrown and all the staff are out and they kind of gather all the boys together. And I remember I was standing in the middle or sort of like set back from everybody. And a Kalsa High, you know, was kind of reading everybody the riot act, like what the hell are you guys doing? This is so dangerous. And like, you know, somebody could have gotten their hand blown off and this is just so irresponsible. And then he looked at me and he was like, you too, Shubbid. And I was just like, and I didn't even have the guts to say, yeah, I had, I was so scared. I just was like, oh no, I just heard there was something going on outside and I came to check, you know, I mean, just, so it, it just was, you know, that's my introduction. And that, then we go to the Himalayas and we go hike up to Hemkunsaib you know, which is like pretty serious trek, two serious treks, two days in a row. And I'm so out of shape and I'm sick. I'm like, you know, uh, I have the runs and I can't walk up the hill. They put me on a donkey. You know, I'm getting absolutely just made fun of because I have to ride a donkey. On the way down, the donkey bucks me off and like pulls me down the trail. You know, it's like, I, what else? Like, you know, the, at nighttime when we're, we're, um, we're all sleeping while we're on this trip, we don't have individual dorms. So all the boys and girls are just sleeping in these big halls, like in their sleeping bags on like with like a camping mat. Uh, and like, you know, the staff, the older kind of male staff are sleeping at the doorway. There's like not even a door on the place. It's just like an open thing. And I remember one kid going and peeing into a water bottle and pouring it all over the commandant, who was the weirdo um, ex-Marine that was hired to be our principal, who's also like a right-wing psycho. He, uh, yeah. Fred Jameson, he's still around. If he sees this, hi, Fred, you have terrible politics, but I wish you the best. Um, But he, you know, uh, he was, nobody liked him. So this other kid goes and pees in a bottle and pours it all over this guy's like sheepskin and sleeping bag and his bag and everything. And then he goes and he finds a stray dog in the neighborhood and he lures it to the guy's sleeping bag with like a treat or like some food or something. And he kind of like puts some water there or something for him to chill out. So it looks like the dog did it or something. I don't know. This was his like brilliant. The funny thing was, is that Commandant immediately knew who, who it was and that it was not the dog and went, saw what happened, immediately walked over to the kid that did it and was like, I know you did this, you know, and wow. gave him some kind of a, you know, he had to go go run a mile and run a bunch of miles or something who knows what but you know this is the kind of the mentality that i'm coming into i mean 
what that did to me, what that that year and those years did to me, it's hard to even fathom how much those experiences kind of imprinted on me, you know, like, you know, I, I was, I was 11. I was 11 years old. I remember being brought by some of the older kids to go jump over the the wall at nighttime and uh, walk into town and um, buy alcohol and go like drink it. I'm like 11, you know, and I remember uh, coming back from lunch break and my my roommate, you know, we had bought hashish when we had just been on our spring vacation to Dharamshala. And, you know, had, I hit my first hash pipe at age 11 in my dorms before yeah. I went to uh, Uncle Sat Hanuman's. Uh, uh, he was a visiting teacher who taught us about the Civil War. And, and I went and I aced his final exam when I was just completely stoned. And uh, I accepted an award from him in front of the whole school, like shortly thereafter. He was like leaving town and giving me an award in front of the whole school. And I'm just completely stoned. And I don't know, you know, it was, you know, and then, and then, so you're experiencing all of this sort of chaos, you know, but then at the same time, you're going to the golden temple multiple times a week and you're madly in love with it. You know, I mean, it's, there's no denying it. Like I built a real loving kind of connection to that place that I still feel you know and and you get to know people that you do seva with and you learn your little bits of Punjabi and it just totally you know whatever mind I went there with was different you know when it came back because you're just being and this isn't necessarily a negative thing obviously there's a ton of negative stuff that I described there but the positive I guess side of all of this is that I don't know maybe not everybody reacted this way, but I definitely, it was like, oh, my perception of the world is extremely limited. You know, my experience of the world is very particular. And, you know, I can look at the street and I can see that like, you know, that guy didn't ask to be a beggar. That guy, that person didn't ask to be born into the situation that they were born situation they were born in. And I do remember being there and going back to America every year and sort of that the austerity that I lived in in India and the sort of tough, tough kind of uh living circumstances, but also witnessing the kind of poverty and the need in India and then going back to northern Virginia, literally like one of the richest counties in America. And going shopping at the mall and stuff like that. I remember being like raging mad when I would go to the shopping mall and I would see, you know, just the the disparity, you know. And um, I didn't really, couldn't make heads or tails of why things were the way they were, certainly, but it definitely instilled a really deep sense of like, I don't know, some on some level, like, you know, that kind of the world operates on injustice uh, or just isn't fair in any way. And, um, and that was really powerful. So I think that that definitely impacted me in terms of the way I looked at the world and I looked at people and cultures and history and politics, even if I 
wasn't conceptualizing it all at that time. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was fortunate. Mm -hmm. But then there's also a lot of trauma. There was also kind mm -hmm. of a, you know, there was an unconscious sort of just a white sort of colonial mentality that that the staff had, that we had, you know, about Indian people and um there was there was a it was a very unique psychology to develop in that place where on one hand you're when you're weak and you're you're small you're uh in fear and you're under threat but as soon as you're big enough you do the same thing to others to carve out your own sort of zone of security and power but then also like so sort of like experiencing what it's like to be mistreated but then and sort of having maybe some empathy for that but then just immediately recognizing that the sort of the safest way to proceed was to make yourself as tough and sort of horrible as you could and to you know and i mistreated kids younger than me i remember my first year there i tried to pick a fight with a kid who was you know around my size to like just i remember like walking around all day thinking to myself like i need to like increase my my social credit or whatever and like i you know a kid brushed against me in the hallway and i just punched him in the head and you know so i think like violence as a violence as like a just a readily accessible form of communication was pretty pretty uh, was made, you know, was a big part of how we talk to each other. And implemented, uh, uh, you learned that social order real fast. Instantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You didn't Who was learn the staff. It. Who was the staff when you were there? Uh, so it was Commandant Fred Jameson. Um, Jugget Gudu. He, he was there, maybe it was his third year as a staff there. Uh, Amrit Singh Reinch. It was his first year there. Um, he was there for a long time. And then uh, Akal Sahai was there. Um, I think Parmatma, late Parmatma was there. He was, I think he was a teacher and like he took care of the younger kids. He was always, you know, a kind of a, a safety, like him and Akal Sahai were definitely always sources of safety. Um, Who else was there? Those are the people that I, you know, uh, Jaga Guru's wife, Guru Dave. Um, yeah. You had yeah, mentioned I mean, going back home every year. So um, from age 11, you went back for vacation and then was able to, so kids didn't stay there for law, like eight years. Right, the time. Everybody right. already went back during MPA. Yeah. So we would, you know, the school year was in India and then summer break was at home. Okay, so then that had changed from the early days of GNFC. Right. That was a part of what had changed. Right, you know, and which did afford me opportunities to like, you know, hang out with my friends from elementary school who were going through their lives. And a lot of those relationships kind of disappeared, but I did maintain a couple that I still have to this day. And then, um, you know, and then I'd see my family in France or I'd do summer camps and stuff where I, you know, at the local public community center and you'd interact with 
kids there. So I, I definitely look back and I'm grateful that I had that because it, at least I didn't feel completely alien from the people around me when I finished school in India. I yeah, wasn't like going back to a foreign country, which is America after eight years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the next thing I had question I had, and you may not know the answer, but I was just curious if you know how your parents afforded sending you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they they I think that back then the tuition was only a few thousand dollars a year. It was much lower than it became. Uh, like by the time by like the time I was teaching there, it was like almost like a normal private school in terms of the like it was more in the tens of thousands of dollars a year. Whereas when I was going there, I think it was a few and there we were I we were maybe even given a lower rate because of my parents' income or something. So I don't know how much it was, but both my parents worked jobs. You know, my dad ran his chiropractic business. My mom worked for all different kinds of uh, jobs, including for him, but also other things. And and I mean, frankly, they they afforded it probably by hook and by crook and credit cards and all kinds of stuff. Because my after my second year at school in India, they had to or during my second year at school in India, they they actually switched houses with the people across the street from us. And the people that lived across the street from us were Guru Amrit Singh and Omkar, who, you know, many might know are at some of the core kind of members of the like Yogi Bhajan, whatever, um, you know, community group that's, you know, in complete denial of any of the reports of harm and, um, so they they had two kids. I was an only child. So what happened was is my dad basically couldn't pay his mortgage. And instead of losing the house and having to find somewhere else, people in the community came together and Guru Amrit Singh and Onkar basically said, look, we have the cash to put a down payment down on your guys' house. You, why don't you guys move into our current house, which is that the one across the street from where I grew up, and we'll move into yours, and you can just pay us kind of like a handshake rent that's kind of, you know, a little bit below market value, and, you know, you don't have to sign a lease, and in a few years, when you've built up, you know, kind of stabilized financially, we can count your rent towards as like a, you know, payment towards owning the home. And so, you know, at that time, it's like, wow, that's pretty cool, you know, that the community comes together to make sure that we can stay there. And they're even creating this avenue to where my dad can get back on the property, you know, own, you know, owning owning a house and, and all of that and um, and whatnot. Um, and that story doesn't end there. But for many years, we live in that home, paying rent to Onkar and Guru Amrit. And my dad does go back to Guru Amrit a couple of years later when he has some cash saved up and Guru Amrit reneges on the deal. And Guru Amrit says, I never said that. And basically dismisses my dad. 
I'm disgusted. So, I just want to pause on the disgust. Yeah, no, really. he's, you know, I, I have no um, admiration or respect for Onkar and Guru Amrit. I think that they're really privileged, um, self-centered people who, um, who are showing their true colors now when they're investing their time and energy into ensuring uh, or in trying to stop any kind of meaningful change in this mm -hmm. community um, and are participating in, you know, denying these people's stories of abuse, like, so actively denying and actively pushing against and a couple more things I want to say on that. I lived there and I took care of their kids, uh, Sebong being one of them. I forget their other son's name. Um, under. 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 I remember both those Sebong and Subunder. Um, I also remember Onkar being one of my guides at ladies camp because um, she was like this really starch, you know, military like. And so I was so surprised to see them in the community at that time. But I want to really bring up that I just remember how um, nice your home was. And so to hear this story and the the distortion that, that I'm feeling around it, um, it was the nicest basement I had ever stayed in, you know, and I was just in the basement. So like the whole house was multi-storied and there was just some pride in it around the beauty of your household. And I remember your, your mom really appreciated her home, even, even though, you know, as a household, you had to rent to other people and all the things. But there were, like you said, other households in the community that definitely didn't have to do that. And then for that to be the house they buy and have it become across that it's all so benevolent, we're doing this for you. Um, and once again, it just feels like it goes to the, the sinister quality that repeats itself in 3HO around the haves doing of things of good service on behalf of the have nots when really that service was never service. It was, it was the fraud. It was the business deals. It was encouraging people to give up their mortgages to help the good Jot Singh scenario. But the people that were signing over their mortgage didn't really even know the real story. So they think they're doing good. Anyway, that's what that whole thing reminded me of. I know about that whole story. You know, I was obviously before my time, but I heard about that on the Gurganesha episode and I, we're hearing about that growing up and it definitely has like a certain symmetry to it right I mean what you know so what long story short I mean this is long after I leave India long after India and, and a lot of years this is actually just in the last this is like what 2017 my dad was in very poor health he could barely run his business. My, oops, my, um, you know, mom was working for him. And so their income was through the clinic. And um, with about, I think it was two months notice, Onkar and Garamar told us that they were selling the house. So, you know, they... At one point, I was so incensed. I was so angry. I was so deeply, deeply angry because it was not only was it like, obviously it was dishonorable to say you can, we can basically do like rent to buy. And um, that's, and then to renege on it, that's obviously super shitty. 
But at the same time then, but then to like be selling the house out from under us when like my dad is in severely poor health and struggling financially after we have paid, we've never missed rent. We'd been in there since like 2003, which means, you know, approximate, we put probably close to almost like $400,000 into that house or maybe like half a million or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's which should have paid for the house. But the brilliant business minds of Onkar and Garamrit decided to start a mortgage processing company in 2007, just before the financial crash, which many economists were already beginning to predict, but they decided that was a good use of their money because they're brilliant um, business people. And guess what? Their entire business crashed and uh, they lost all of their money. And without telling us, they put the house that we were living in on a second mortgage or they used it as collateral to borrow money from Garamrit Singh's mother who you know inherited huge amounts of wealth they're descended from literal copper barons um he borrowed used the money to borrow money from his own mother's trust and the mother's trust was in 2017 was finally coming back to collect and they hadn't made back the money to pay it because their business crashed and so they just they needed to sell the house. They needed to sell the house. Meanwhile, their children own each own multiple homes. Uh, and they're, you know, they're literal, like the robber barons of the 20, the early 20th century is who they are descended from. <laughs> His wow. great, great grandfather discovered, a, discovered a copper mine and exploited it at the, when the telegram started to be created. So that's the kind of thing that they have. And, and so in a norm, in, in normal society, they don't owe us anything, obviously what they did for us was nice. Right. For what we're supposed to be to each other, ostensibly as a community and as three HO was in that moment, it was, I was already, deeply questioning a lot with this community but that was almost like every like the fruiting of this long story that goes back to the beginning of it all you know and and it was a real powerful um painful awakening to the callous indifference of people that are supposed to be like your family but who ultimately are governed by the same mentalities that they claimed to be rejecting in part of joining this community. And it's not just them, it's all of us. It's all of us. I mean, we're all created in this soup of racism and, you know, patriarchy and capitalism and, and all of this kind of stuff. And we're not, we can't escape it, but, they really thought that they were doing something revolutionary and it had no political ideology. It had no social ideology. It was purely just following a guy and doing the stuff that makes you feel better about yourself. And um, all of 
that came crashing down. I feel like it was already crumbling. And then in those moments, it was just like really laid naked of how like far from the stated aspirations of the community, it this thing, this situation was. Yeah. And, and that was a, that was very powerful. And, you know, I think it's like, I know we've skipped far ahead. So if we want to, we can rewind a little bit, but my time in India, I can, I think that I, I feel like what I've shared about my time in India gets across how it affected me. I experienced sexual assault there. I was assaulted and by another I was, student. Yeah, by an older student. With, with a Sharpie, with a marker. And in my sleep, you know, I you mean, was using your body with a Sharpie while you're sleeping by another person. Yeah, by 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 an a older, sex- older an older boy student. So wow. I was, you know, I was, I experienced being held, you know, my, both of my arms behind me by a bigger kid while another bigger kid stood in front of me and, you know, punched me in the face and, and wouldn't let me leave until I stood still and accepted the punch at full force. You know, I was, uh, and then I beat up little kids. You know, I was 15 or whatever, and I would, you know, take a take a young, you know, a 10 year old and I would, you know, uh, starting out as a joke, you know, goof goof around with them. And then it would turn physical and violent. and I'd push them to the ground or I'd slap them or whatever. And it was just like a part of that culture. You know, it was a way to get off your own anger and frustration and. Yeah, and, and it, it, it India really, um, I think I was really depressed there. You know, by the end of my time in India, I would do everything I possibly could to get out of whatever the activities were. I wanted to stay in my room, in bed all the time. I didn't want to do anything. You know, it, it, it was like a... You know, and there was there's obviously some wonderful stuff to it, some really incredible life forever that I'll always for you know remember, friends I'll always have, things all that things I would have never experienced or seen, you know, but 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 as an institution and as the way it functioned, it functioned off of violence and intimidation. And that was this that was from staff to students and older students to younger students. Um, you know, there's a million stories of kids getting beaten up by staff. I was physically pushed around by Jagat Guru. Um, I was never like actually beaten up, but I definitely know of other kids that were by actual staff members long into the history of the school until very recently. You know, you had people at the school who had multiple you know reports of abuse when i was a student or sorry when i was a teacher there i was witnessing adults you know physically accosting students who were you know not not obeying or whatever so or just even straight up out of like anger and rage so it was a violent place that rewarded 
obedience to the people, to the leadership, rewarded a certain presentation of oneself as a certain kind of Sikh yogi, tough thing. I think it was a really tough place for the for the women in the school, for the girls in the school, because it was such a hyper-masculine environment. And, you know, our sex education was Yogi Bhajan's like humanology courses. So we were learning about auras and like why, you know, how your aura is imprinted. A woman's aura is imprinted by a man's for six years if she's intimate with him, but it only imprints onto the man for 90 days. And, you know, this kind of like intense, like feeling like, like fear around like your sexuality and your, you know, your relationship to women. And it's like, so such a head trip, you know, so that that's, you know, affects my the way I interact with the world, you know, after that as well, you know, so a lot of foundational things that I would have, you know, I think I would have been starving for just a, like a, a, a nurturing, safer environment. It's nothing wrong with being challenged and your limits pushed and taken out of your comfort zone. And, and, you know, uh, the world is a scary play a, a crazy place and bad things can happen anywhere in the world but like by design and and institutionally how it was structured this place was just like you know it was an abusive thing and and people were decrying it and at and calling for change as long as i can remember you know i remember parents who would come there and they would believe their kids and they would you know raise issue take issue but um and and you know, incremental changes happened throughout the years. I was there again in 2011, 2012 as a staff, as a teacher. And I had just come from studying urban planning and public policy and nonprofit management. So I knew a little bit about how you operate, you know, organizations and how you, you know, I had some ideas of, you know, effective methods for teaching and operating programs and when I went back when I went to the school in India I was at back as after after college I was just like man this place is like the incentives are really messed up here this kind of punishment reward system is messed up there's like extreme favoritism between you know Jagat Guru who's kind of has this interesting like social capital and and power um and you know who we looked up to is almost like our like yogi bhajan or our spiritual teacher when we were kids there um and i saw like how how it's like whatever its stated purpose was it was not i don't know I, it just was not instilling a lesson it, it wasn't it wasn't creating independent thinkers it wasn't like nurturing people it was just still like indoctrination mediocre k through 12 education and like an extremely busy schedule that run by people who absolutely had less than zero education or training about um caretaking young people or young people's psychology or education they have no business doing what they're doing 
and they were doing it for decades and it was just like operating off of like a few people's notions of how things should be and and then you know ostensibly you have a, a board structure that's meant to keep them in some kind of check but ultimately those people were sycophants and were essentially going along with like what the recommendations were coming from the school which were self you know self-supporting and 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 you know, so I, that drove me nuts when I went, when I worked there for a couple of years. And that was definitely the beginning of the end, I would say, of like my of last sort of faith in anything of what, you know, we'd been raised with and seeing like, you know, again, it's like, there's nothing, there's nothing, what's hard to kind of say, what's, what, what can get lost is that I don't think that anybody in this configuration, except for maybe Yogi Bhajan and a handful of people around him, were doing anything nefarious. Like, I think that Jagat Guru oversaw a, a horrible program and, you know, essentially contributed to abuse. And the same way, hell, that I did when I got older as a student and I start beating up younger kids, he's just further along down the, down the, the road and he never left. He just and more entrenched and more lifted, right? And more centering around him to kind of like help to put him in this position. If I'm understanding, Jagat Guru and Guru Dave went over to India at around 19-ish. I mean, they graduated the program and then very quickly got sent over there, married young around 18-ish because she was my best friend at the time. I even have letters of her writing to me saying, you know, me and Jagaguru and are in love. And I realized this is our life now and going to India is what it's all about. And, you know, just this whole fantastical and, and they were young. So I, I think you're pointing out something very important that, you know, he was a kid that went through it and then he gets put into a position. And as any yoga teacher in the guru demagogue world that we come from, there is something about a following that when the following starts doing that to you, you know, it's hard not to accept it and then to live into that. And then he's trying to live up to an image in which he has to then uphold no education, no background, no training. And yet he's then put into this posture to, to probably by YB to make MPA what it's supposed to be. So he's given a guruship in a way to do an impossible task because he's not equipped. He's not trained. He has his own complex trauma that's never been addressed and probably so many more things you could add to that. Yeah. And so at the time though, I was just angry and I, I kind of centered my anger at him because I saw you him. Mean while you're teaching while yes. you're over there. Okay. I, and I want you to explain that. I also want you to explain how you ended up going there to teach. Yeah. I mean, I mean, how did I end up going there to teach is sort of, feels sort of like the same way of how I ended up going there to school of like when I graduated from school in India and I went to college I had the idea then to go back to school in India and try to teach there and I thought that the problem the thing that was missing there was education and and knowledge not that it was will it was built in such a way to be how it was right um, so it was like, it was really like altruistic, actually. It was like, I'm going to, 
and, and it was naive and, and kind of like, you know, I'm going to go get educated and, you know, I'm going to be, be the kind of synthesis, you know, that, that believes like that there's something redeeming in MPA and, and, you know, I, I developed a deeper understanding and reading of like Sikhism and Sikh history in that time as well. Like uh, after school in India. So I was like, you know, like we should get a deeper connection to Punjabi history and society and culture. And, you know, I feel like I left, I lived in India for all this time, but I walked out with such little cultural understanding or education and like a very minimal understanding of even like the history and the philosophy. It was like, you know, a lot of Yogi Bhajan stuff. And then a lot of like, okay, we're going to the golden temple. Okay. This is how you read Punjabi. This is how you read Abani. But there was nothing much deeper. It was sort of like activities to, or, or, you know, practices to add to your list of practices. It wasn't like, let's develop like an intellectual relationship and a social relationship with this world that we claim to be a part of as Sikhs. And I kind of like the, you know, going back to like how I was all about constructing a logical argument. I was sort of like, Oh, you guys aren't even it's, I was almost like, I'm actually a truer believer than you because I'm, I care so much about what we have that I'm willing to ask difficult questions and I'm willing to investigate, you know, I'm willing to like um, learn from different sources and look outside of the like universe that we grew up in and go, you know, where else can we find seek education and how can we like really give people a more meaningful connection to Punjab and Sikhs and Sikhism. And so it was like, actually, it was out of like really deep faith that I wanted to go back there, but with a sort of like a critical mission involved or like a that had that had this sort of criticism built into it. But then I went and tried to do that. And it's like, you're just running against a brick wall, mm. you know? And, and I think that that anger towards Jagaguda developed because I couldn't really conceive of the problem outside of this little microcosm of the school and, and, and that, you know, it, it was hard for me to kind of like, I just didn't have a wide enough awareness to, to kind of go, oh, this is a systemic problem that, that, you know, starts much deeper. So so yeah, I mean that was that that year I I I was ready to completely disconnect right then and there. Like after that school year, I was like ready to I was, you know, I had the idea in my mind to just completely like shave all of my hair and my, you know, everything off and disconnect from all of it and even though I still like had a deep kind of affection or affinity to Sikhism, I was like, you know, I need to kind of like build my own Sikh identity and my own like relationship to this religion. And I want to just sort of like start on my own and like make these choices on my own. And, and I was, but it was also, it was coming from a very reactive, angry place because I was like, you know, fuck this. This is like so backwards and it's not how I think it should be run and it doesn't seem like anybody actually wants to inquire how to make this place better or to eliminate you know bullying and abuse I don't know and and, and or kind of look at themselves and criticize ourselves and be like um 
transparent and and humble and i felt like you know that i sort of was like wasn't that kind of like what yoga and meditation is supposed to be about is like surmounting the ego and like you know um going beyond these sort of uh, attachments to tradition or to um norms and and really just going what what is the correct action based on my values and the circumstances using like clear mind mm. and so i was just like so i was so earnest it was it was just so like genuine of like like i really believe in all this stuff so much that i and i'm so disappointed that you won't kind of like change yeah. the way that think or approach this problem to deal with it but obviously that wasn't the diagnose the, I wasn't diagnosing the problem correctly so you know I was ready to kind of like disconnect because I was just so angry and so frustrated and disappointed mm. and I reconnected with my who was a woman who was my good friend and who is now my wife took money was like at the end of that time in India and she sort of walked me was back she, off. Of was she at the school? No, but she was at, sorry, she was at summer solstices every year Got for it. many years. Um, she was never really into 3HO or Kundalini Yoga. She would just come to solstices, play music, and she wasn't really connected to it outside of literally the that week. And she was friends with my friends. We were close in age. And we were both in, you know, relationships and stuff. So we were always just platonic, you know, friends for many years. And then um, it just so happened that she visited Amritsar my last, that year where I was teaching, that second year where I taught. And we kind of, we saw each other there and connected and we had a really, you know, kind of powerful, intense conversations about all kinds of stuff. We were both going through big, big kind of changes in our lives and and I think that you know she recognized that anger in me and that desire to sort of lash out and completely disconnect as having to do a lot more with my own trauma than necessarily like I needed to do or she just posed the question to me like you know is that kind of really what you want to do or is it more of like a just a reaction or something like that. And, and so I, I kind of like met, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, I don't need to like have this explosion, but I've had this experience and I have this point of view now. And, you know, the next several years of my life were really like the evolution of my relationship to sick money where in like 20, 2014 or 2012, when I, finished my time in India is like shortly after that is when we, you know, we were not no longer in the relationships we were in. We were in a different time in our lives and we reconnected at that summer solstice after I came back from India and we were just like, I don't want to not see you anymore. And, and that was the beginning of our relationship, which, you know, 3HO plays a role in that in some ways. I mean, we wouldn't have met if it hadn't been for solstice she becomes the percussionist for sonatum car and for ajit car 
And so that allows her to like travel and start making a living as an, um, a musician. And that travel allows us to see each other because it brings her to the East Coast in Virginia where I moved back to after teaching at the school. And we're able to see each other there and and without going completely into our story of how we of that whole story because it's long and, and complex and um but circumstances basically forced us to elope and so we eloped to mexico together and lived in mexico for six months in 2015-16 after i was you know going through coming back from working at the school i was working for the community in herndon you know right back into the into the community organizations and i was also working and trying to set up an alumni association for mpa and uh so like, even though I was, I was like still hooked in because they were like, you know, economic opportunities that I needed. And, um, but, but I was really like, just, I was really hard time. I was going through so much. I mean, you know, yeah. going through all kinds of obstacles and challenges that were presenting themselves to us being together that were like very challenging there were there was you know uh coming back from, from working at the school in india being back in my childhood home for the first time for more than a few months at a time since i was like 11 um and so it was very tumultuous emotionally and like financially, I was like, you know, they paid me next to nothing in India. Um, I I basically maxed out my credit cards living there just to like be, be able to enjoy myself, like go on a little trip or certainly wasn't living large. Um, but they paid so little that I just, you know, I I didn't have any money. Um, so I came back less than penniless, like in total debt and uh, trying to dig myself out and Sukmani and I end up together and then circumstances make it so that she can't come to the United States. And I figure out, you know, I'm working for this alumni association part-time online and we decide to elope to Mexico and we ended up getting married in Mexico in a little civil ceremony. And then began our green card process, which brought me to uh, go live with her in England and we were there and then um, after about a year of living abroad and just sort of like figuring out how to be together, we were, she finally was able to come to the States and that's 2017 when she lands, which is also shortly thereafter, months thereafter when Garamrit sells the house out from, and Onkar sell the house out from under us. So I was like, you know, we were in total like, after leaving India until about 2018, so like a good six years, I feel like I was like in chaos mm. in some ways, you know, worried about my parents, um, you know, ability, like housing situation, 
income and health and uh, dealing with, you know, this whole unfolding of my relationship with Sukh Money that is requiring us to improvise and live around the world and scrape together an income. And then I settle back down in Virginia and they sell the house out from under us. Mm. And incidentally, this is also when I start to become politically aware. The Bernie Sanders campaign happens in 2016. And I listen to him talk and I go, this is the only politician that has ever said anything that made any sense to me, that people should have health care as a human right, that people should have housing as a human right, that you should have education as a human right, that you should have a clean environment as a human right, you know, that and an understanding that essentially the story of America and the story of history is uh, who controls the means of production, who controls how we make what we make and who is able to accumulate wealth is who controls political power and the un and the social ills of the world are the um, side effects of a sick way of doing business as a society that divides people according to their skin color and their sexual orientation, their gender, their, you know, country of origin, it basically to keep us from um, wrestling power from the very few people who have uh, vast, vast amounts of, you know, the vast majority of wealth in all of society. And this isn't conspiratorial thinking. This is just the basic economics and reality of the world we live in. Yep. It made sense to me that if you want to, if capitalism and the way that we control, the way that we govern society and that in the system that allows, not only allows, but encourages the vast accumulation of wealth and the domination by a few over the many, if that's how we do things, then it makes sense to me to be a socialist, to uh, fight against that system and to work to build a different system because that system is the system's bad uh, and it, it basically runs off of violence and exploitation yeah. that gets papered over by entertainment and material distraction and um, I recognized some congruencies between what I was seeing in America and what Bernie was saying and what was going on in my own community and how my own community was not living up to and never had lived according to any kind of values that were anything but American capitalism with a turban on. Yes. And that capitalism brings along with it white supremacy and patriarchy and homophobia, etc. So when people talk about 3HO is like a white supremacist organization. It's not saying that this is the Ku Klux Klan. These weren't overtly racist, atavistic, violent, you know, white supremacists. These were people who were educated in and molded in the America that they were molded in, which was inherently and is inherently white supremacists. It's how we built the wealth of this country. 
uh, and it's how we uh, divided the rest of the world along colonial lines and post-colonial lines and continued neo-colonial relationships with the darker countries of this world. Yes. And, and we maintained that mentality. We never had any deep questioning of it. We never had an alternative. We just had somebody who basically taught and lived by the same mentality, but used really um, interesting language and uh, a whole mythology to just, you know, make his own little brand of it that created a different enough experience for the uh, the employees. <laughs> where... uh, yeah, so well said. There's so much that you just said. I hope you all go back and, and rewind that whole little segment um, because the pillars of white supremacy that we oftentimes don't recognize. And one of the main ones that I've been able to recognize in the 3HO culture, besides a bazillion other things, was the exceptionalism. When you have such an exceptional story that allows you to be the exception to white supremacy, there is the indicator that you're so deeply steeped in it. Right. Well, and it's interesting to learn from Premka's book that Yogi Bhajan instructed her to write letters that were published in Punjabi, in Punjabi newspapers. Mind you, Premka didn't read or write Punjabi, so they had to be translated. He had her write letters about how we're like the true inheritors of, you know, the Sikh tradition that your, you know, Punjabi children are cutting their hair and drinking and leaving the community and we're the real continuation of the Khalsa tradition and all this kind of stuff. It makes perfect sense to me that he would have directed her to do that and that he would have um, promoted that feeling for a few reasons. One is, is because uh, he himself was wealthy and relatively light skinned and privileged and educated and uh, benefited from the meritocracy. And also uh, it created a useful firewall, you know, so that people couldn't go here the perspective of the Punjabi community or understand it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. The legitimization of ourselves through that type of a maneuver. Um, yeah. You also talked about uh, social capital and how important that is in terms of um, the posture and positioning that somebody like a Jagat Guru has even to this day by witnessing him um, branding himself as the, as a spiritual coach and this social capital is everything. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, in this world, financial capital is super important, obviously. And you can see that and who was elevated and who was sort of brought into the inner circle and what kinds of experiences they had in pre-HO. Um, but social capital was super important in the community, but also like even all the way down to the school level, like I alluded to, you know, if you were Jagaguru's friend and you played, you were a boy and you played basketball and you, you know, had the same kind of humor and you, um, you know, I think, you know, and this is, this is when I was there as a kid and I, and, you know, I think I saw similar behavior when I was there as a teacher as well. And, um, everyone's everyone evolves and grows and so I want to like respect the fact that Jagat Guru has been dealt the cards that he's been dealt in this world and um, 
you know, have have just like an understanding of that and um, not sit here and try to like cast judgment because that's just not, I don't know, I just don't see myself or whatever anybody as higher or lower. I think we're all just going on this. We've been dealt the cards we have. Um, yeah, so I yeah. say that though to say that I saw social capital in action at school in India. And I understood that if you wanted to be treated a certain way, you presented yourself in a certain way. A lot of these guys that sort of enjoyed this special attention, um, you know, they'd also like do, they'd be like really active in the yoga class or they'd be doing their own meditations and they'd be a part of the gutka, the voluntary gutka team. And but how about the ragi group? You know, like if you were a part of the ragi group, I mean, that only adds to the social capital. So even beyond focusing on Jagat Guru and how that played out in his life or Guru Devkar's life, thinking about the social capital as a norm of 3HO, as a wielding of power that YB instilled early on, Premka got social capital. She was one of the least, she was so deprived as her memoir talks about, and yet the posturing she got enabled her to have a um, a position that other people were violated by. Even if it wasn't her being the violator, the position itself was the social capital that created hierarchies in which other people's lives were doomed or uplifted. And so I see this as a thread around how I think how the denier side, the people that are completely not paying attention and all the people that are playing shocked and genuinely from their heart may genuinely be shocked because maybe they were in a blind stupor for the last 45 years, which we know in complex trauma is very plausible and very possible. Um, and then you add yoga and meditation and Sikhi to it. And it's even that much easier to stay in this kind of zone of not paying attention. So going back to social capital, why be yielded and wielded social capital by who he gave attention to, by who he positioned, by who he gave names and titles to. And even if they weren't actually making money, the social positioning bought them enough capital until they had to move on to something else, until his attention no longer was on them. So I just felt like the whole languaging you gave that not directed specifically to MPA, although that has a whole generation of, of what you talked about. There were decades of people decrying change. There were decades of people speaking to things needed changing. This, I think, goes back to social capital, that the people doing that decrying weren't important enough to actually be able to be on the inside to where to where those changes could happen. Like that's the nature of that, this institutional abuse you keep referring to, that it's not just about a well-meaning person wanting change. Right. And, and if you were on the inside, you wouldn't have those views. You wouldn't have a critical view. You wouldn't be allowed inside. You know, it's like people talk about politicians and God, I can't, you know, why do, why do they do this? You know, why do they vote for things? Why do they vote for, you know, Wall Street or pharmaceutical companies or, or uh, you know, weakening labor unions? Like, even if you're ostensibly like a Democrat or, or, or on the left. And it's like, well, they wouldn't be in that position in the first place if they had the view that unions should be strengthened and that people deserve universal health care. They wouldn't be there in the first place, you know, like, like Obama, Obama is allowed to be 
our first black president, even though there are other black politicians, you know, before and along with him who were brilliant organizers and orators and had fantastic ideas for policy, they were never going to be there. They were never going to get there because their point of view is too critical and radical. And so you need somebody who's going to be acceptable and palatable. So, yes, uh, you know, it's, it's like holding the party line, right? It's that kind of concept. And even as we've witnessed from uh, from the book Premka and Pamela's story, but other people's stories that have, quote, been in leadership positions, a part of the wielding of social capital is that he never really gave power. So social capital kind of has the illusion of power. You know, somebody could be in a position of power and actually have no power at all. And they are more powerless because he postured them publicly and then he isolates them and doesn't allow them to have self. And so it's one it's one thing I, I don't think I, I think that there's a complexity to layers of inner circles, you know, people in power, people that were because when you actually end up in leadership positions in some of these places of institutional abuse, you realize you never have any capacity to wield anything. You feel more trapped and then more duplicitous, like what you're talking about, realizing I can't change anything. Where should I go? My whole identity is here. And so decades can go by in that place until you have a situation that pulls your ass out of it and just says done already. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that, that, that social capital is so powerful when Yogi Bhajan's alive because it's all about proximity to Yogi Bhajan and losing that proximity is the same thing as losing the power. Um, you know, if you were, you could be Letty Singh or whoever at the top of the food chain and then be out all of a sudden because you're going through Shaktipat and you're negative or whatever the case might be. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just, it was no different, um, you know, in, in my era, it's like you had, you had, it's funny, it's, it wasn't any one factor that kind of gave you social capital, because there were people who went to school in India who, you know, adopted the Nihang, you know, Damala style, and they got into Kirtan, but they didn't get the kind of like, love or the, um, sort of elevation that say, uh, you know, Sadasat and, and Jagaguru and that and Charity Kalajetha did. Mm. And multiple reasons for that. I mean, it's their existing position in the community. It's also the fact that like, you know, Jagaguru was placed in India where he could learn and practice and Sadasat, you know, had the means to be able to uh, study and live in India without, you know, without having to make money for a long period of time. And you know, that's an interesting story, too, that, you know, his family obviously, you know, come from wealth and have a certain position in the community and and all of that. And again, this is like I'm just pointing out like realities like I I consider Sadasat like a friend, you know, and I I I think he's like a good guy, like a with with with. um I don't know. I just think he's a good guy who, who means well, but is again, it's like it, it's that doesn't really matter. It's like, and, and I'm not talking about him now because now I feel like is a very different story and I don't feel like I can even evaluate anything or pass any kind of judgment again, okay. looking back at that time and going, you know, it wasn't just if you did 
that, you know, the, the yoga, it wasn't just if you were, you had the identity, it wasn't just if you spoke good Punjabi, it, you know, cause there was a lot of people that, you know, learned a lot and had a lot to offer that went through the schools and, and that whole world um, that didn't get that same sort of um, elevation in the, of status. And I think there's multiple factors of, you know, who is in that group and what their kind of roles are in the community as is and who their families are. Who their families yeah. are. I wanted to bring that up. Who their parents are. Um, if I'm understanding, and I wanted to go back to this anyway, around the East Coast, a lot of people in in Virginia had come from prominence wealth, and, and you had brought that up earlier. Um, but specifically, I believe it's Guru Sangit. Yeah. Car and their family lineage is actually the CIA guy. What was his name? James Angleton. James Angleton. So I wanted to bring this up because it just adds to the complexity of the history of, of certain families that ended up in social capital roles. So of course, YB had a masterful ability to pull people in that had wealth, to find out who had wealth, to bring them as close to him as possible until he could extract that wealth. And not just from the people who joined, but also from their brothers and sisters who may or may not have joined. I know my mother alone had her brothers that came in briefly and got extracted with money. Um, anyway, th this is not a new, this isn't unique to, as you said, Sarasat or any of it, but who your family is and who, what position that family held in the proximity of YB and how much social capital carried on even beyond YB's death and still exists to this day. That for years, even prior to 2020, people would tell stories about how close they were to YB. Teacher trainers would speak about being an original teacher. They were marketing the olden day teachers as the legacy teachers. Everything was always about the proximity, closeness, and influence of YB. Even over the last decade of watching the white tantric yogas, every story that every beautiful young woman tantric facilitator that are my sisters, and I love them personally, so this isn't against any of y'all personally, but you all held the party line of telling your nostalgic stories of the ways in which YB influenced you in interestingly personal ways. And this adds to social capital. Until then in 2020, then it became less social capital to be as close to YB. And so you saw people rebranding their story to have it being influenced by more than YB and all these things, which adds again to the complexity. It's like, it's not Jagat Guru's cards, he didn't deal himself those cards. Either did Sada Satsang, either did Guru Dave Carr, either did me, you, the household we come in, the caste we end up in, the class we end up in, how important our family was to the social order and how much they carried that party line. Like my dad was known as being a troublemaker. So even though he held the party line, he often created chaos and so this becomes the persona of him and then what his kids quote got to pull this right. stuff apart doesn't make any sense it's not rational but yb did these things manipulatively because then you think you're forming bonds with your neighbor but really there's a deeply bred competition for status as a household yeah. And, and, and if there's not a, a competition, it's because people understand their own status and they accept it. So it, it may not necessarily mm. be uh, 
there is competition certain types but then there's folks that that accept their position you know i mean i think that my dad so you know I, like saw him sees gurjot singh as sort of the closest thing that he still has to kind of like a a teacher or like a mentor or something like that you know yeah. and and like and that was the case way back then too and like I can't read my dad's mind, but just from a life kind of what observing, you know, you kind of can see how, like who the, who looks up to who and sort of who envies who, or who listens to who and yeah, who perceives themselves and how people perceive themselves in relation to each other. And I absolutely, there was a hierarchy, but a lot of that hierarchy Yes, it was like around that proximity to Yogi Bhajan, but then it also was related to the existing hierarchies that are built into society, you know, like you're talking about of generational wealth and, um, you know, your blood, all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, we're just, it was just a new, another filter through which it was passing uh, and, and obscured once again, you know, the, yes. the true relationship is obscured once again. And I think like, you know, so, so like, I, I guess I'll, I'll go back a little bit and just kind of just to get through the narrative, I think, and, and refocus, like, you know, 2017, 2018 is a big, big change, you know, the house gets sold out from under us, you know, by the same token that our neighbor across the street sells our house out from under us, our neighbors next door, Satwant Singh and, and Gurjotkar basically delay, they were planning on selling their own home. They delay selling it so that we can basically live there and pay, you know, co cover their costs or whatever on, you know, at the drop of a hat. And they wanted to make sure that we could stay in the neighborhood and all of that. And, the you know, people in the community were upset and wanted to figure out a way to help. So it wasn't like black and white, like, like on one hand, I, you know, on one hand, it's like there's this gross betrayal of not only like your neighbor and friend, but just sort of the mentality that you're supposed to think you you think you're supposed to be upholding on the part of Onkar and Duramret. And at the same time, there was a lot of empathy and and, you know, concern on the part of other people in the community. So so it's not like it was, you know, it, again, it's 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 more complex than one than being one thing yeah did definitely make me think like you know the problems that we have are happening because you know we only conceived of how to live in this world under the terms that kind of everybody else does we didn't think of anything different we didn't think of any way to like ensure each other's you know well-being um, we just sort of were middle-class liberals that, you know, owned our homes and had our jobs and went to church on Sunday, um, except it was a Gurdwara, you know, and, and, and nobody's free from that. You know, I think that people, that's the norm is my point. It's not like it's hard to rise above it because it's such a powerful system and we are really kind of left to our own all ourselves to sort of scramble through this world so 
you really I want, have. I want to have you put a pin there because I want you to finish this thought, but I do have a question for you on that because I feel like there was an entire generation that did think they were doing something different than the capitalistic norm. They were living communally. This is what they thought, why they should give the businesses up to the family business. They, they, they thought that what they were doing was different. What they didn't realize is that he was a tyrannical leader taking it for himself and he wasn't leaving anything for a family of anything. Um, so there was that. Um, but I also feel like the East Coast did it differently in that a lot of people did have their homes under their own names, where say in Phoenix, that was not the case at all. Every single property was under 3HO Phoenix. Nobody, and my dad talked about it through my childhood as a, a strategy to get beyond capitalism so that you didn't have to pay taxes on, on land and yada, yada, if there was a mission-based life. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there because I think some people thought they were doing something different. Definitely, definitely. And so it's, again, I mean, my assessment of things is, is going, is imperfect because it's like, you can't factor for all these complexities, but, but the point I guess is, is that we even, well, A, it's the point that you made, which is that, at the top of it all was a self-interested person and structurally it had no democratic mechanisms. So it was, it was a dictatorship. So they, they put all their trust that, yeah, they did have this vision an egalitarian kind of a vision that is so admirable and is so like beautiful. And, and unfortunately it was uh, taken advantage of by this person and they you know they rescinded their own power to him and they didn't have like a political or organizational project that would ensure the accountability and and democratic kind of yeah the democratic accountability that's required to maintain actual egalitarianism like you need to actually have systems in place and 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 power structures that are responsive to people, but you obviously didn't have that. So, so I guess my kind of realization, I mean, that's a good, I'm glad you asked that question because I think the point that I feel sometimes can be lost in these conversations because of this, of the cult label, which I have no problem with as an academic or a psychological tool for sort of understanding, you know, to, for grouping studies and understanding phenomena. But something that I think can also happen is a hyper fixation on the cult aspect and losing sight of the fact, like the reality that all of these systems of violence and hierarchy and control are existing concurrently with what we're experiencing in 3HO you know you want to talk about lack of accountability in a tyrannical power system like talk to you know poor people in America poor black people in America in particular but poor people period so like their every bit of their lives is controlled and mitigated by factors outside of their control and many of them still sort of believe in the myth i mean you have a lot of people who are still caught up by racism and hatred as an explanation for their troubles and um 
still have faith in some sort of an American ideal and, and, and a myth that allows them to continue participating in, uh, in, in, in a system of violence and, and right. supporting and, and promoting it, even when it's completely counter to their interests. Mm-hmm. You're talking dominator systems, right? Imperialism, neocolonialism, like how all this, I feel like I got there after doing maybe like 50, uh, maybe like 50 interviews. And I started realizing, wow, okay, we're nothing special, actually, folks. <laughs> like, this is just a little microcosm of all these systems that as you start to see it and you can start to see dominator systems. But for me, that happened by having these interviews and realizing, whoa, this cultural other identity that I've so shaped my whole self around is rooted in the legacies of white supremacy or in the myth of white supremacy. But it's a really hard reality to see in yourself. Like, whoa, I participate in this because I don't know how to speak to it because I'm silent to it. I say I stand for something else, but I don't know how to because my identity is so wrapped in that. So I just I really appreciate you lending that to this conversation. It's so easy to think we have all these things we need to talk about in 3HO. And we do. Of course we do. We need to air out our dark laundry. And you start seeing the whole world and you realize, wow, we got lots more work to do. And the conclusion that I come to is from that realization is the need for solidarity with the downtrodden basically and like to position yourself as adversarial to the systems that perpetuate what we're talking about system of harm it's hard because as an individual you don't have any power um and ultimately the only power that we can build is the power of solidarity and togetherness and large numbers uh, that build their movement in the image that they want to govern from. So you build your own internal structures such that you're accountable to each other and that you're, you're not allowing for dictatorship and, and uh, manipulation and you work together to intervene where you can in this broader society against these systems that keep us uh, impoverished, ignorant, um, violated. And that for those of us who don't live that way, who don't feel violated, who don't, who don't feel under threat, who, who have means, it's important to recognize that your plot your plot in life is inextricable from all of those people in suffering and without means. And that ultimately we don't fucking fix this stuff. Climate change is going to drown us all anyway. And so it's like the story of 3HO is actually an extremely timely and important story that all of us who experienced, I hope can, can come to a conclusion of the need for organization and collaboration and solidarity with with oppressed peoples of all stripes and to put whatever you can on the line to fight against that. And that's like, to me, that's the only conclusion is like wherever you're at in inside of 3HO, 
participate in the political stuff, do what you can to, to share the message, like what you're doing of telling the story of putting a counter narrative and message out there outside of 3HO, read history, like understand how we are, we've arrived at like this moment of crisis and that it's all connected to the way that we fun the way that our systems are structured to operate. It's not individuals, it's not political parties, it's not certain countries, it's not certain religions. It is the very way that we just do business as a society that incentivizes the worst and suppresses the best of us. Yeah. And it's it's no different. And so like, yeah, it's not to simplify it, to oversimplify either of them, but it's to say like, like let's not lose sight of um, the bigger question. And, and I think that the real root of these problems. 100%. And the bigger responsibility we carry to actually notice this outside of the microcosm of, of, of this unique identity we got and fighting against that, that, wow, the, the awareness or the lack of awareness thereof within the structures we come from and to be, start seeing institutionalized abuse the way that it's all around us, even if we're the privileged recipients of that. Exactly. Um, it's mind blowing for me, the, the healing I've received in this arena in the last year by being willing to examine these unexamined parts of me because of the unique cultural experience we got. Um, and I did, haven't been politically active as you are. I really appreciate your lens into this um, through the work that you do, uh, what you stand for, um, and just the work you're doing on yourself, you know, to make sense of un unsensible things. Um, I want to also just acknowledge what you shared about Sukmani and your journey together and the immigration story of that. And um, I didn't know the connection. I didn't know she was the singer uh, with Snaram and and uh, Ajit, even though I have listened to both of those works and all the things. So it's just, it makes me happy to realize, oh, that's the soup money. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for this. Um, I know we skipped over your entire um, Eugene experience and not sure if you wanna mention anything from the, those years or anything specific that you haven't covered that you wanna make sure you cover in this episode. I mean, you know, I, I experienced a lot of important things, I think, in Oregon. I think that, you know, I still have relationships with people from the community there. Um, really good people out there who are more, who are a little older than me, but also grew up in the community. And um, they were really, help, like, important in helping me sort of navigate that time after India. And so I'm definitely, like, you know, the... The, ma the majority of feelings that I have about Oregon are really positive ones. You know, I went to college out there and, um, you know, had my first love and had my education and kind of, it was really sort of the first time I was opening myself up to, well, really living among people that weren't 3HO, frankly. And uh, that was huge. And and that's also where I got, I would say, introduced to like grassroots politics. And, uh, you know, that's where I met my, that's where I met the first anarchists and socialists and 
radicals I ever met. And um, I didn't know it, but they were all leaving an impression on me. Um, I saw Occupy Wall Street happen from Eugene, you know, I participated in Occupy marches. And again, I wasn't connecting what I was doing to a bigger political vision or project, but they were all little awakening moments that were really important. And uh, yeah, you know, I, it was, it was an important place in time and I'm grateful for it. And, and it definitely was important for sort of helping me open up and transition in my life. So <clears throat> I love Oregon. Awesome. And I think it's an important ashram to bring up because it's, you know, the hub of Yogi Tea and there's just so many young people that do congregate in certain areas during what I consider like the no man's land zones, like after India, not sure what's next. And so many of us have had these transitions periods around like, what did we do? And you end up congregating in certain types of ashrams that then lead to other opportunities. So yeah. I just wanted to open that space in case there was more of that. No, yeah, I mean, it's it's good that you mentioned, I mean, it's like I was actually in the courtroom when, uh, because I was in Oregon and where these, the court proceedings took place for the whole uh, unto infinity thing. Damn. So I was like, I was like, you know, I was working at Golden Temple and Yogi Tea, like when all of this stuff started happening, I was there when they sold the cereal part, you know. What uh, year? It would have been like around 20... I think I'm right if I'm saying like 2010, 2011, when all of this starts unfolding. Um, you know, I remember seeing Cartar get questioned on the stand and, you know, uh, what's her name? Um, was it Prem? And other all these people that were like the Unto Infinity board, I watched that all sort of unfold. That was interesting, you know. That was a real interesting moment to be like, these people are like maybe justifiably angry at 3HO, but their response is to just steal everything for themselves, basically, like to just massively enrich. And so like at the time I was against them, you know, and I was very critical. I was like, these guys are obviously doing something self-serving and this was not right. Um, but it was, a, it was definitely an interesting time that I don't think, yeah, it was like the beginning of, of like this political turmoil that is continuing now, I think. Like it, it just, because Yogi, but because the myth was still so strong, there was allowed to be this sort of like unity and like, kind of sense of like us versus these bad guys, you know, it was kind of interesting to see. And mm -hmm. there was a kind of split in the community somewhat because some people's parents got involved with that whole Sikh Dharma stewardship board, you know, and then there's those kind of lines start to get drawn. And then, and then it was very interesting to see then how those, those rifts then re-rift after Yogi Bhajan, you know, all this stuff comes out and who ends up where and I don't know, it was, uh, that was definitely fascinating to watch. And you definitely felt like a sense of decline and a sense of like, 
whatever project was intended is not going it's not going to according to a plan because the people that were left in positions of leadership, they leave, take the money and take off their turbans. Like that's the response, you know, like I was so far out of the community shove it. But I remember thinking to myself because, you know, I, I was around Krishna at the time thinking to myself, like, is that not symbolic or what? Like these people that hold down leadership all these years, as soon as they get a chance, they take off their turban and run yeah 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 uh, but watching the factions it, yeah totally interesting thank you for that insight too i thought that was really um really interesting um and lastly one thing that's on my mind is um i know you were a part of the vice uh, documentary that came out and i'm just wondering how that felt and um there weren't that many of us as second gen speaking there um but I thought your lens was an important lens and you added a, a voice that I hadn't heard other voices come in and speak to. And so I, I was just overall wondering how that felt. Well, the producer reached out to me through, uh, I, I became friends with Philip DeSlip, the professor, um, yeah. and some really interesting research on Yogi Bhajan's history and history of the community. And um, he actually, him and I actually had a conversation in 2018 where he told me about, um, he didn't use Premka's name, but, or I think he alluded to Premka and that story, but then said, there's just so much more where, you know, women all have the same or similar stories. None of them knew each other at the time until later. And so as early as 2018, I was having this sort of political transformation the house gets sold out from under us and um i'm seeing this i'm developing this kind of new political criticism of the community and seeing how like power is vested and used in the community and how you know what we've been talking about how it runs along the same lines as broader society and i go man this is really messed up you know and i was being very critical of it online and getting into all kinds of fiery debates on the second gen page or whatever and you know uh and and then philip and i started talking i i just stumbled onto his work somewhere and i thought he you know it was interesting because i was like hmm you know he's obviously has done serious research and this isn't just some somebody like making a personalized criticism or or something like that this is somebody who's really like researching and interviewing and all that so it was interesting to me but the defense mechanisms were still so strong that i was immediately like uh weary of him you know so i talked to him on the phone and i just had like a nice you know friendly conversation with him and somehow we got to talking about the stories of abuse and he brought up, you know, what I just said about multiple women and all similar stories. And, um, and that planted a seed in me where I was like, where, and once I heard that and we finished that conversation and I thought about that, that possibility in the broader configuration of everything that I was realizing, I was like, Oh no, that makes perfect sense. Of course that makes absolute perfect sense to me 
And then it also wasn't the first time I'd heard anything. I'd heard things from Punjabi friends. I'd heard things just, or, or you start to look back at stories you hear and then you see them in a different light, you know, about, oh, you, you know, the, the secretaries and, and, and all this kind of stuff. Like you, you just kind of go, oh, he was surrounded by a house full of women, of young women all the time who waited on hand and foot. Yeah. Okay. Like it, I was like, well, if that possible, if that there, the means and the, the, the circumstances, the power, the motivation, I mean, it's all there. So it makes sense. So that, that was kind of, I was sort of not shocked when all the Premka stuff started to come out, but that was obviously really important for just getting everybody like talking about it and having some kind of a common reference point <clears throat> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you know the zoom calls i think what shocked me the most and probably many was suddenly hearing all the second gen start talking about their their india stories and from your own experience obviously people knew that there were things going on in india but nobody was ever talking about it in some sort of a public way um yeah and so that in of itself is in our community can be shocking because when things are hidden or just not discussed and then they're discussed, it can produce all sorts of animated emotions inside. Yeah. And I think that that call you're referencing, you know, was supposed to be like a call that was a few hours. It ended up being 11 hours on Zoom of just like crushing story after crushing story of abuse and mistreatment and uh, at the schools and and by or, or uh, you know, with Yogi Bud. And I was going through that. I was experiencing that at the same time that Philip put me in touch with the producer for the Vice documentary. Wow. And, you know, I really, this point that I kind of keep harping on of the similarity, the congruencies between what we experienced in the broader world was really at top of mind. And, you know, it's just, I, I just think it's, it's just not a perspective that or or a point of view or like an idea that others were really expressing. And I just felt like it was really important to, to bring up because I feel like the actual solution to these kinds of problems is a political one. It's a, it's a Mm. question of power. And I really didn't want that to get lost because it's not just about like sentiments and it's not just about like a desire for things to be better. It's about doing them differently. Mm. So I really wanted that sort of narrative to at least be considered by folks and to be more widely considered in general. And so when the producer reached out to me, we ended up on like a several hour long call where I was kind of laying out my own story, but also like the analysis that I'm sharing. And he found it really compelling and, um, you know, originally was because of those conversations was pushing to try and make a whole series about it, um, which unfortunately got scrapped and it got put into one episode. And so the little bit that you see of me in there is the is like clipped out of, you know, probably an hour plus of, of film. And, and the way I felt about participating in it was overall was good because I felt that the producer from Vice was coming at it with a really genuine um, do no harm kind of perspective of, okay, I want to focus on the stories of the survivors. 
and I want to, I don't want to like be, make, paint some salacious sensational picture of, you know, look at these rubes who got taken in by this, you know, wacky guy from India. Um, I was really concerned about that. And um, I found him to be the opposite of that. You know, he'd worked in Palestine covering that conflict on the side of the Palestinians living in Gaza. So I was like, okay, this guy is not an asshole. You know, if he's going <clears> to <throat> put his body on the line that way for uh, in that circumstance. And um, so I agreed to do it and I tried to get some other folks. I actually, I, I, I think that I was, you know, in part helped Satpavan participate uh, I encouraged her to participate and but obviously it was her courage and you know I mean what an incredible uh thing to capture you know I thought they did I thought that was obviously the most moving and important part of the whole documentary I'd say the criticisms that I have is that you know the counterpoint the sort of believer is represented by Gurfate Singh coincidentally Himmet's dad that's who Himmet's mother I left know that Too small, too small of a world. <clears throat> he represents, he was sort of the main, him and Dharma Singh, who are two, you know, if you wanted to present. The most fanatical view, right? And, and if you wanted to, you know, obviously you, you would have liked the first rep, the people who are still in from first gen who have accepted the truth didn't get any kind of voice in that. So it's sort of painted like, the people who leave are the sane ones and the people who stay are the crazy ones. And they look at, you know, the sane ones, they were right all along and they were saying blah, blah, blah. And then here's the crazy ones. And then you don't have like a, the you nuance. know, or, or yeah, all the good people that we know who are still wearing their turbans and participating in the community, but who are like fighting to make sure that, you know, survivors get that victims get money and that um whatever the community can do to actually support them happens like those people exist so that's that was a really important piece that got lost in the sauce and i don't think it was nefarious i think it's just the nature of a 30 minute segment right so he want he, yeah. he called me apologized he said that vice basically decided not to make it a series Got it. Well, I just want to thank you for your participation. Obviously, Satpavan and all the rest that did too. But um, I do think it's incredibly courageous when anybody that's born in um, to our community speaks out in this capacity, especially with a dissenting opinion, you know, with an, and I say dissenting, but just one that's steadfast in the discovery of yourself over the high demands that our lives absolutely um, incurred. And when you grow up in something, it's normal. So all of us are just kind of used to high demands. You know, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a high demand group. And personally, I think it's a better name than cult because it's it's high controlled group or high demand group to me made me realize, oh yeah, there were definitely lots of demands on our life. And I've never looked at it as demands or controlling except that it all was, you know? Um, so I appreciate that lens as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks yeah, for um, making a space for pe people to talk about all this stuff. 
Um, I do have one last question for you because um, I have experienced it and I'm just kind of wondering how you would handle it being more politically active. Um, so one of the things I had remembered Krishna Carr mentioning, and she's just like in full spiritual bypass. I know she means well, she cares about the kids. She cares about everybody. She wants everybody to get along. But my experience in dealing with her, she's 80 something, um, is she basically becomes a child when I talk to her about anything related to this community or Yogi Bhajan or abuse. And I see that as a trauma response. It's not something I would tell her, like you're turning into a child because that's, you know, self, it's self-defeating and, and it doesn't help move the conversation. But now that I recognize complex trauma in myself and I can recognize it in general, um, we all have different expressions of it. It can come out in various random ways. So one of the things she would say, and I knew, I knew it was a bypass, but still it's making a good point. And the point is, well, the government's a cult. Well, the whole world is set up capitalistically in a way that, and so making the points you're making, but it's a bypass. So there's a difference between what I feel and experience with you having this conversation around, we really need to look at dominator systems and the way this type of stuff plays out on much larger political schematas and not using that as the reason to not self-examine and to look at our own community. Right. No, I mean, that's a good point. I, on that 11 hour call, Somebody who was not born into the community, but who joined it later, uh, thought that it'd be a good idea to talk about their experience of going to Catholic boarding school as a sort of a way to say bad shit happens everywhere. Why are we like hyper focusing on this? Why are we blah, 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 right? Which is, and I exploded on the call. I came off of mute. I couldn't uh contain myself um and i honestly kind of regret it because i don't think that this person is a an ill-meaning person i think that they were that's genuinely what they thought and i disagree with them but it was just so charged that i like exploded and i was just like you know you 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 know not, not the read the room you know kind of a situation um and I owe her a call, actually. I should probably give her a call. But anyway, um, so that is an important distinction because similarly to like the way Donald Trump uh, says like, oh, you know, when, when people would talk about horrible things that like, you know, I, there's a famous clip, right, where somebody's like criticizing Putin or something years ago. And he goes, oh, you think America's full of uh, sweethearts and angels? Like we got, you know, cold killers. Like that's how we built our world. And it's like, it's sort of a, the, the like, again, it's bypassing by saying like, oh, this is just the way the world works and blah, blah, blah. And he was actually really good at that. And it was one of his, his tools, his mechanisms for um, moving the conversation to where he wanted it. Mm. Uh, really masterful actually you know i'm uh, at the risk of sounding like i'm going to praise this praise donald trump which you know obviously i uh, vehemently oppose his politics you know i hope that he uh, goes to prison but but you can't deny uh how slick he was in a certain way psychologically the way that he um played off of people but anyway that's an aside Anyway, so so yes, it can be a total bypass to say, hey, the world's fucked up. That's how things are. You know, live in reality. 
live in the reality that we live in, like get real, you're being unserious. Um, this is pie in the sky thinking, like this has been a problem since forever, okay? Well, guess what? Until the labor movement basically shut down industry at the turn of the 20th century, we didn't have weekends or an eight hour workday. And now we do because people intervened and acted. That it's as simple as that. It's okay, yeah, the world is fucked up. We all agree on that. Yeah, the systems of control are messed up and we don't we don't like them. Okay, we can all agree on that. But then what do you do with that information? Okay, is it, oh, everything is a conspiracy, right? Uh, everything is, oh, it's the Jews. Oh, it's the, you know, it's because of immigrants. Oh, it's because of 5G. Oh, it's because of whatever insert, you know, fantasy here to neatly explain why your life isn't going the way that you want it to instead of dealing with the reality of very real identifiable things happening right in front of us that are making our immiserating our lives and our planet and our ecology now what are you going to do with that information mm. and what is the correct response and when you understand like what what is actually going on and it's simple it's an age it is an age-old story of rich and poor and have and have not and power and control and you know the response that everybody has to changing capitalism as they go well, what about the soviet union and and what about the the demagoguery of that and all this kind of stuff and it's like okay well what can we learn from that guys Obviously, if that didn't work the way we wanted it to, what can we take from that that worked? What can we take from capitalism that worked? What can we take from liberalism that worked? What can we take from socialism? What and and what and we have to build something, and we also have to fight, and we have to win power to figure out what we actually even want to do. And so it's very much the opposite of, yeah, things are bad and you know everywhere is bad it's like no at every if everybody standing in the world right now can develop could suddenly have a class consciousness and a political awareness you know be and recognize the contours of their own the domination of their lives and they said simultaneously i'm going to now act in this way because of what's going on to me to respond to it, then things can change and they have changed, you know, like we have changed things before. So um, that's my response to that. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I, I just think it's such an important remembrance that we all take as listeners to be like, that's not a good response back. Right. We can't take a, you can't just put a turban on the same behavior, call yourself a spiritual community and think it's all better because it's, it's just putting plaster over the same mechanisms of control and domination. And now is using spiritual lingo. And um, as Philip to slip, so eloquently described in his academic academic research you know pulling the real story of where all this came from what made yb such a good leader is that he was stealing real truths and then he gave us a totally unique identity with a bunch of fragmented truth so our whole identity is quite a lie doesn't but if you trace it back to the truth you can find yourself so to speak kind of same That's thing so important too to say because i also try to always whenever i'm talking to like people from the first gen it's like i want it's like i know that i speak with like a a certain 
like percussiveness or whatever. Like I know that I can be very plain spoken and direct and appear to be like, maybe have some acerbicness to what, to how I speak. And it might come across as like angry or, or, um, you know, I don't like you or I don't like this or I, this is bad. And that's really not how I approach any of this stuff because I see it. I try to see it systemically and I try to remove the individual's sole responsibility. Of course, we have to have responsibility and accountability in life, but in terms of diagnosing the problem and the solution, if you just focus on individual personalities, you're going to miss what's happening. I always like to like that's how I see things. And I also, I always try to say like, I respect and admire what that generation did. I respect and admire the people that got into 3HO, whether they were in it for two years or 40, whether they un do see the truth or they don't, because they forged ahead in something that they really believed in. They worked their asses off. The majority of them were honest people they built this. Yogi Bhajan didn't do shit. He just happened to be the spoke around everything that everything was turning. This belongs to the people that built it. But unfortunately, they can't even recognize that themselves. But I actually have a load of respect for all of them and love and admiration. And I don't think that they have to. Nobody wants you to throw the, your identity and your history down the toilet and say, oh, like, we're. I don't. That's not how I see it. I don't want any, I'm not shitting on these people because I think that we know what we know when we know it. We do the best that we can with the knowledge that we have. And we now have some new knowledge. So let's actually do the best that we can. That's all anybody is saying. We're not saying we hate you or we, you know, you're horrible or you are the cause of this pain. It's like, no, we are all part of this story. We now got some new info. Let's please move forward together based on that. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's how I wish it would go, but you know. Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing that here, um, for bringing your story, for bringing your heart and also just for bringing it to the world. You know, I, I just really appreciate you. Thank you. Guys, thank you. Um, we're going to move into wrapping up and tell us um, about the song you chose um, and also make sure you say anything else that you want to um, share to listeners before we wrap up um just i don't know do do what makes you feel really alive uh and uh, uh explore your creativity and your um mind and your curiosity and that's the only thing that's helped me through all of this because i've been through a lot of pain i'm still dealing with psychological issues you talked about re returning to childhood when my wife brings up that i didn't take out the trash. I sometimes can't even deal with it because I, you know, I'm back in, she's laughing um, because I go back to being scolded for, you know, I don't know, uh, being forced into the cold shower at, you know, three in the morning when I'm four, because it's the right thing to do or whatever, when yeah. I'm just trying to deal with reality and trying, somebody's trying to show me some new information and asking me to act a little bit differently based on that. I have already dealing with it. So the only way that I've found healing is, is therapy. I do see a somatic therapist. I don't see a cult specific therapist, but I found that, um, and 
I think that that's a good idea, but I just not my case. That's been profoundly helpful. I take, uh, uh, I take venlafaxine, uh, XR, which is an antidepressant, uh, that helps a lot. And I also, um, just try to stay engaged with like my own mind and my own creativity. And that's really helped. So if any of that can be helpful folks out there, I hope it can be. I appreciate your vulnerability, even in our exchange, your willingness to be like, hmm, yeah, I'm feeling depression and I don't think it's a good time to, to talk. And the process of being able to come home to our own emotional experience and be able to name what something is, I found to be an ex extremely hard over the decades. So your um, willingness to share that, I just had so much respect. Um, I know it's a daily struggle. I really suffer daily. Um, with complications of CPTSD. And a lot of it is uh, moving from um, hyper anxiousness that I would have never called anxiety because we weren't allowed to have an identity of, yeah. of anything that was emotionally unregulated. Um, so even though all the symptoms were obviously anxious, I would have never put it in that category, which is totally weird to me today. Um, but not at yeah. all once we understand our experience. Same thing with depression. Of course, I had experienced depression. I just would have never called it such a thing. So again, your vulnerability to share yourself and also whether it's medication, whether it's therapy, whatever realm of therapy we find. Um, I've learned also that um, we can need different types of therapy at different stages of ourself. And so wherever you find yourself, I just, um, I have so much honor for you for knowing what's right for you but also any one of us, the place you land, um, get the support you need and know that it can evolve and change. Yeah, and it's out there and it helps. Absolutely. What I've recently found more recently is um, cult support groups um, through the Law Lich Center. Um, it's not therapy and it's not even set up that way, but it is an opportunity to be able to just join in group discussions where there's other people of of. Um, born and raised groups as well as people who joined and what's blown my mind so much about it is to realize how many versions like we had this unique exceptional wear a turban identity but so many more of them are not you know i found there could be a, a political cults there were lots of um psycho development brain development a lot of other kind of new age cults I and Anyway, it's blowing my mind because when you meet other people that have also gone through things like you, you see the similarities in each other and it has nothing to do with the same ideology. Yeah. Yeah. We're all Pokemon. Right. <laughs> it noises, but we all went back into the same Pokeball. <laughs> we make different noises. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you for your sharing transparency. Um, and sharing with us in process. Um, I only have good memories of, of being in your household. And I do also remember it being weird in the sense that I felt like I wasn't a part of 3HO anymore. Um, I was forming this new identity. I didn't have respect for YB. Um, and I remember Guru Jot Singh suggesting, uh, I had dreadlocks at the time. And Guru Jot Singh was like, would you like to call YB and find out his opinion on dreadlocks? And I was like, no, actually, thanks. So like I was in such a rebel spirit stage of living in your guys' ashram and to have been in your household to, to, to know you as a child and him it too. It, it marked me and Face Wally, you know, my husband at the time and connecting with you and him at later was like remembering 
hearing from a child that it's always so weird when an adult comes back and be like, I remember you as a child. Do you remember me? And you think that they're not. So I was fully okay with you and him at not remembering me, but that you did, you were like, oh yeah, this cool African came and lived in my basement and cooked for us. And, and anyway, it was to awesome. me, it, yeah, it represents the, the web of connection that we get to still keep, even as we move through the distortion. Yeah. It left an impression on me. That's for sure. And, and definitely expand my worldview there's no doubt about it you know I mean just like to know an African man as like my housemate was very new experience and was so healthy just to like yeah just to have that connection with somebody from a very different world and to see you who'd been you know talk about going outside of a box you know like going to places that I'd never been and uh, I admired your uh, your adventurousness and your like spirit, you know, you could feel it. And it was definitely like, I was really, uh, it really, I don't know, it, it, you know, when like, I don't know, you meet certain people or like you hear a certain song and it sort of tickles something in you that is really powerful. It's really exciting and new and, you know, I, that's how that when I think back about that time and meeting you, that's how I feel about it. It's like it was, you know, it's 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 a part of many little experiences throughout my life and people that kind of told me things that I or, or demonstrated things that I didn't really know what I was seeing or experiencing until later and could appreciate later. So, um, yeah, it definitely left an impression. Yeah. And, and totally, even at the time, I remember just kind of feeling proud around it because like my husband wasn't a Sikh. He didn't wear a turban. I wore my own unique, colorful turban. I didn't wear white. So I was definitely like finding my way, loving the yoga, but not liking lots of things. And so as a kid, seeing any of it, it always helps to be exposed, to be like, oh, there's another way to do this. Um, and then there was just all sorts of impressions around the niceness of the environment, the, the community was much more well off than anything I had ever experienced. And yet it wasn't wealth. You know what I mean? Like as you're saying, it's just middle America, so to speak, your parents weren't well off, but they just lived in this. And this is face Wally's first version of America. So he saw it through this like rich lens after I had years of telling him, we have no money, we have no money. But it was because of the Bhagwan Singh and Carr that sponsored him to even come in. So it was because of time in Virginia that even opened up the doors to get him into the country, which goes back to the duplicity. Like I got so much of the community and connections while trying to pull apart the things I didn't like, which is yeah. what this work is, you know? Yeah. Tell us about your song. Um, you know, I, I, I spent a few minutes thinking about this and I was just like, there's nothing that can encapsulate. There's just no, there's nothing that, that, that I, no track I could play that could, uh, express the breadth and depth of feelings and complexity that I feel about all of this. Uh, um, so the song that I chose is very simple and I think it's pretty self-explanatory and it's by uh, Gangstar, who was interestingly uh, the the rapper that, or the the duo that created Gangstar was DJ Premier and the rapper Guru, and uh, I always felt like he was he's he's a good guru in my life. My favorite rap group, by the way, 
uh, gang star. I learned about them when I was 13 and it was because I was going to public school and I would be like, my name's Guru Nishan. And they'd be like, you mean guru like gangstar? And so it ended up becoming a way in, you know, you were cool because I didn't even know who gangstar was, but of course he has to become my quick, uh, my favorite rapper. So thank you for this. Here we go. We are listening to Robin Hood Theory by Gangstar. We got to give back for the youth is a few real. That's keeping it wrong. Now that we're getting somewhere, you know we got to give back For the youth is the future, no doubt that's right and exact Squeeze the juice out of all the suckers with power And pour some back out so as to water the flowers This world is ours, that's why the demons are leery It's our inheritance, this is my Robin Hood theory Robin Hood theory I seek son, deceive none, for each one must teach one At least one must flow and show the structure of freedom It's me done, cause petty things we don't need them Let's focus to create something great for all that sees them They innocent, they know not what they face Alright folks, and for po copyright reasons, we don't play the whole song And yet you can click the link in the show notes And you can listen to the entire song on the Uncomfortable Conversations playlist on Spotify. So click in the show notes. Thank you, Shebid, for bringing your voice here. Really appreciate it. Likewise, thank you. And this concludes another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. If you'd like to contribute to this broadcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation at gurunishan.com or check the show notes for a link. Please email me if you want to be a guest on the podcast at gn at gurunishan.com. And please also subscribe, follow, and support my work um, and share this podcast with a friend. A lot of people don't even know it exists yet, and you can share the link and let somebody know it does. Thank you for your listening support, and we'll talk to you on the next one.